Hello and welcome to Decoded the Gurus, the podcast where an anthropologist and a psychologist listen to the greatest minds the world has to offer and we try to understand what they talk about. I'm Professor Matt Brown. I'm staring right at the beautiful mug of Associate Professor Christopher Kavanagh. G'day, Christopher. Welcome to this recording with you and me together. G'day, Matt. On most days in this online office that we have, one of us looks slightly healthier than the other, mainly I think, you know, just the Australian sun, that kind of effect. And my pale effervescence gives the inaccurate impression of, you know, impending death or or, or something like that. But and now, today, I have a, a healthy spring in my step. I slept well. And you are recovering from an illness. So you look a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. your bones look weary. Your mind mm. looks weak. <laughs> your, hair, your hair is tussled. You're like the, in Lord of the Rings when the old king is possessed by Sauron. That's the <laughs> <laughs> After that, you do you look well. You you've got a rosy thing in I'm your chipper. cheeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I slept more than six hours. <laughs> That's why. Good. That's what did it. Yeah. Once once you get to my age, Chris, it doesn't matter how long you sleep. You just feel weary all the time. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's not age. Maybe I just need to get some exercise, get some iron in my diet or something. I don't know. Maybe you should go see the Mario movie. I went to see it with my son. I'll just say, Matt, if you don't like that, if you're too cool for school, (laughs) you know, oh, commercialism, like go (laughs) take a long jump off a short pier because that was just pure fun and escapism. As somebody that's played Nintendo a lot, I... Very much enjoyed it and enjoyed my son enjoying it. So screw you all. I, I think most people like it, so I'm not really sure. Well, there are. I, I've heard some like hipsterish reviews about it, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. So, oh, really? So what? Yeah. The hipsters were criticizing, saying, oh, the turtles weren't quite right. And uh, they were just the- saying a commercialism come to Nintendo. God forbid. <laughs> imagine. <laughs> Imagine that. And, you know, oh, the jokes, they're just these kind of very straightforward jokes that we all heard 10 years ago and we're <laughs> tired of now. I'm like, what do you want? Edgy Mario? You want edgy Mario? <laughs> Where's the social Come commentary, on. Chris? Where's the social commentary? Does, yeah. it, does it discuss injustice or something at all? <laughs> Where's the racial politics in the Mushroom Kingdom? Well, there are some. There are some. There's interracial marriage discussed oh. in it and so on. But, you know, okay. you just have to dig a bit turtle, deeper. A turtle and a mushroom princess getting together. It's beautiful. That's um, right. And also an inherited monarchy but the nomination process by which the princess gained power, it's not clear. It's kind of like a, you know, Hitler-esque rise. The <laughs> unexpected that they would delve into that dark backstory. But yeah, it's a, it's a totalitarian. Mushroom What kingdom. do you call that? A monarchy. Yeah. So. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me of Adventure Time. Adventure Time had social commentary and it, it had a, a princess and she was the ruler of a kingdom and it, it did deal with some. Issues, real issues. Did, Wasn't that also did, trippy? Yeah, very trippy. You, you never watched it? I watched, watched a little bit of it, but it, I, I didn't like the art style. That annoyed me. So ah. My son yeah. watched a bit as well. It was all right. It's a bit like, you know, SpongeBob or those other cartoons that they, I feel like they start to try too hard to be appealing to adults. Uh, Bluey yeah. got the balance right, Matt. Bluey's all right, still on yeah. the... The right side of that. So, yeah. Was it me that recommended Bluey to you? 
It might have been. It might have yeah. been. Yeah, been Bluey's the, the new Peppa Pig in my neck of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been recommending yeah. it to a few people. That's me, Australian cultural ambassador. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. your greatest export, I think, in recent years. So congratulations. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, yeah. there hasn't been much competition, so you're probably right. Well, I'm not going to watch the, the Mario movie. Sorry, I have no plans to do that, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. I'm sure it's good for children of a certain age and their fathers. And people who enjoy fun as well. That it's good for that demographic. But oh, um, those people. Yeah. 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 Well, we don't need to worry about that. Well, we've hit the five minute mark. That's our allotted time for banter. <laughs> Thanks it. to the internet killjoys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You happy now, guys? That's it. Yeah. Chris has got ha- more in him. He'd like to banter more, but he, he won't. He won't do no. it now. I'm keeping it I'm keeping it tight. I'm not really, but you know, we just we throw uh don't know what metaphor to go with. Coins, pennies, bread to the ducks. <laughs> we, th- we throw them a bone. Throw them a bone, Chris. Throw them a bone. That's what we do. Bread to the ducks. That famous phrase. Let them eat bread. But we do have guru-related goings-ons and commentary to offer. So this this episode is not a decoding, but you do have a series of decodings coming up. This episode is going to be an interview with Matt Johnson about his book on Hitchens and a kind of discussion about Christopher Hitchens, where he would fit in the guru ecosystem, where he alive now, his politics and rhetorical flair when he was alive. And yeah, is he an extremophile? Various topics that we'll get into and, and discuss. And we are going to have a separate decoding episode on Christopher Hitchens. We've got it all clipped and stuff. We're not sure when yet, but it's it's coming, right? It's, mm. it's, so just just be prepared for that. Consider yeah. this the appetizer. Mm, the aperitif. Yeah, yeah, we thought we'd do a twofer, do a decoding and the interview, but that was, you know, our our eyes were bigger than our mouth and we couldn't fit it all in. So, um, so yeah, we're just talking to Matt Johnson. He wrote that book. It sounds like, and it is boosting Christopher Hitchens a fair bit. He's, uh, he's written, it's called uh, How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment. So that sounded like pretty bullish to me, but, but Matt is pretty, pretty balanced. Nuanced. He can, he can rattle off, you know, the pros and cons of Hitchens pretty well, I thought. So it's a good listen. Yeah. You guys. Yeah. Are Hitchens is a, you know, like a patron saint of the new atheist movement, but I also think quite popular amongst the intellectual dark web set as well. So that title makes it sound like it would be a kind of peon to Hitchens, but you'll see he has a more nuanced perspective, I think, than that. And yeah, so we will not spoil it. No, don't need this anymore because you'll hear it all very soon, (laughs) very Mm. soon. Enough about that. You'll be hearing about that. But tell us more, Chris. What is coming up? What is laid out on the Guru's pod, Schmorgus pod? Ah, yeah. That's what you want to hear, isn't it? Uh, You want to know all the work (laughs) that we have coming up ahead of us. And do I have material for you? We are going to have Eliezer Yudkowski episode, um, Mm -hmm. which gave us a chance to talk about AI. That's with his appearance on Lex Friedman. So we're going to cover that. We're Mm going to cover Matthew McConaughey's new venture into self-help cults, which is, <laughs> it was an interesting development. And so he did a like five-hour YouTube video with a bunch of you know Tony Robbins types, and it's quite something. So we're going to look at that. 
Hitchens, we already mentioned, and mm. another guru figure that is equally as well established and influential, but still alive for now, is a uh, old Chomsky, Mr. Chomsky. Mm. People have mm. asked us to do him for a long time. And, and even some weirdos are like, you'll never do, you wouldn't be too scared to do Chomsky or whatever. I'm like, they don't get it. You just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so Chomsky, we're going to do him. And then, and then, Matt, we are going back to Weinstein world into their UFO episodes because we've been waiting for it. So we got, we got all these. I'm not promising that's the order that they will no. arrive, but those are coming within probably the next one to two months. And we have interviews with Rene DiResta about disinformation and online ecosystems, all that kind of stuff. And Matthew Sheffield about... Oh, talking about Trump and uh, the kind of guru dynamics and the magosphere, I think, is what we'll be focusing on with him. So, uh, yeah, we've got interviews, we've got gurus. What more do you want? We've got everything. We've got it all. We've got AI. And, you know, for people that are into AI, you know, we don't often do this, but we can boost the Patreon feed, I suppose, which is we did do a bit of a deep dive into uh, Oh, AI yeah, we did do that. We have yeah. content in our Patreon. If you go there, we were doing a paper on AI and it ended up like a two-hour conversation on AI. But, you know, actually, I, I think it's pretty interesting. So, you know, should you want to hear that, it's it's on there along with... I think 16 or so other episodes about research papers and and all the Gerometer episodes and various other bonus stuff which we put up, uh, including early release of episodes and whatnot. So there's tons of nice stuff on the Patreon. There is, absolutely. Okay, yeah. so that's what's coming up. Anything else on our introductory agenda? More banter maybe? Another installment of banter? Oh, uh, well, there were just two little things I wanted to mention. Just two little Thanks. We're still, you look at that. It's only 11 minutes. Calm down. Hold your horses. <laughs> the, the, I, I can hear you all complaining in my mind, uh, my mind palace. But so, Matt, one thing that I noticed recently and that it would be good just to, to flag up is how often the people that we cover, like kind of magnetic forces, seem to find each other. Right, like one of the things that we've noticed is the general trajectory of the people that we cover is downwards, spiraling ever, ever <laughs> down uh, the guru drain with more hot takes and more polarization and and more conspiracies. But the other one is that they kind of spiral into each other, like that. So an example that I would give is Bill Maher who we covered not so long ago, primarily focusing on his kind of anti-vaccine aspects. So, yes, he's a talk show host. He will have various guests. But quite notable that he had on Constantine Kissin and Elon Musk for a 20-minute sit-down, metaphorically fellating interview. Couldn't have been more fawning about how amazing... Elon is and, you know, getting all of his takes on the pressing issues of the mm. day. So, yeah, yeah, just like, you know, the, a lot of these people seem to just come mm. together. And, you know, I have to say the take that annoys me is when people go, look, isn't it fantastic? You know, you can see how terrible the establishment is when even a died in the wall liberal like Bill Maher 
is going to be talking to someone on the right side of politics. Like that's how concerning things have, have become. And a- another pairing up that was mentioned was RFK Jr. going on to Tucker Carlson's show, I think it was, before he got the boot. And going, well, look at this, you know, these are good people that are just concerned about that. You know, yes, one of them's conservative, and but uh, the other one, he's a doyen of the, of the liberal, you know, blue blood, liberal family, all that stuff. I was like, come on, cannot, can you not think of some other reasons why these people are coming together? And it isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah, well, I think that a lot of people know that, uh, you know, are somewhat skeptical about Bill Maher's credentials at, at claiming to be a shining representation of the left. He's like a crotchety, he's just an, where, where would you put Bill? Like, I, I can see him before too long taking a, like, a little bit of a Ruben-esque turn, right? Like, Ruben was trying mm-hmm. to get him to pivot that way in the content that we looked at, and he was kind of resisting that. Maybe he's too died in the world to ever completely go that way, but like, as he said, you know, if they made vaccines mandatory, he'd be off to Florida and voting for DeSantis in an instant, right? Like, Yeah, I think part of it, I mean, apart from the anti-vaxxery, which is a big driving force, but just with these people, it's just generally them getting old, isn't it? Like they just get old and crotchety and things don't make sense anymore and they get annoyed by yeah. everything. Oh, yeah. Remember him talking about the, the Twitch streaming with the computer games and the watching other people with games. So, yeah, they, they it is like that. And Rogan, there's this clip of Rogan talking about how his eyes were opened about the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, the vaccines, what it was all about because he read RFK Jr.'s book and Andy was talking about Epstein being a you know a, a secret agent of the intelligence agencies recently and Rogan's brain is just like a big sloppy stew of all the conspiracy theories bumping around on the internet and all the bubble-headed guru types that he talks to and he just absorbs it in and the good information from like scientists and stuff it just bounces off. It like hits a shiny <laughs> dome and, and it, it might go in for a minute, but it just kind of filters out. So it's that cross-pollination thing. Hmm. And it, it, you know, the people we're talking about a little bit are understandable because the linkage tends to be like conspiracy theories and anti-woke stuff that connects them hmm. together. But it, but it is the case that you just find these surprising crossovers. Yeah, um, yeah. like a, yeah, yeah. a lot of the people we cover, I forget all the pairings because there's been so many of them but we've talked about it which is they they seem to match up like they have no common ground it would seem you know they're working in different areas but yeah a lot of the gurus we cover do seem to find each other although and one special case of course is eric weinstein who if talking about cross-pollination he's he's the busy little bee (laughs) that's visiting all the flowers he seems to pop up with like whoever comes on the scene and is it somehow doing guru-esque stuff eric is there he's there he's always there who, who am i thinking oh he of met this? constantine recently it, uh, there you go after the <laughs> yeah he, of I course think he did I can't, I, constantine was also on dave rubin's podcast because of course <laughs> he was but eric and him were talking on twitter about you know that they they met up and managed to and they really appreciate what both of them do and just like of course you do 
of course you would. You like it, it, It's surprising that you haven't met already. And lest people forget, whenever Kanye West met Candace Owens back in the day, right, whenever he was starting down the path where he's ended up, Eric was there in the shadows of those meetings. If you read Barry Weiss's article, she mentions that, that Eric was there when Kanye met Candace, <laughs> like helping it along. So yeah, just and like you just this. have to ask yourself, why? Why, why? is he there? Yeah, why? <laughs> he's, the, he's the man in the shadows. <laughs> like, like, just around a whole bunch of like bizarre weirdos with extreme opinions but chris let me ask you this to make it explicit because you said you know of course eric's there of course he's there and i i feel like i'm nodding my head yes of course he's there but can you spell it out like why why is eric always there like why would he attach himself to just literally anyone who seems to come on the scene how how would in your own words what would you say well so if you wanted to take the i think a popular critique online it would be that Eric is funded by Teal and he is casting his net to, you know, create like networks to, to forward Teal's agenda. Right now, Uh I, one, I don't think Eric works for Teal anymore because that's removed from all his bios and it says he worked there till 2022. So I think he's out of the Teal network, but Teal and him did see eye to eye. But to me, it's kind of obvious why. Because Teal is this mental libertarian type who, you know, pays people not to go to universities, right? To drop out of university and has a huge chip on his shoulder about anything to do with institutions. Eric, that's all he's about, is complaining about institutions and talking about how... And they both were saying... Science is completely stuck. There's no progress being made in technology or or science and criticizing institutions. So I think that Eric's ideology largely aligns with Teal's. And that's why Eric was like a useful person for Teal to be supporting. I don't think that he thought that Eric was this fantastic physicist who was going to produce a theory of everything. And so like, what was Eric's actual job? What was he doing? He wasn't writing books, right? He wasn't really working on his theory. He did have a podcast, but he stopped that. But he was basically like a, what's, I don't want to say a debutante. <laughs> That's a, wrong uh, word. a dilettante. Dilettante, I think, is the word. Is the like, word. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what he wants to be. This person who knows lots of people, can bring people together, can organize things. And, you know, I, he came up with the intellectual dark web. I think he was involved in bringing Brett to Tucker Carlson and, and all of these different aspects. So in some respect, that's just what his nature is, is as a conduit between people and to try and organize. So, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. So he, he is about networking. He is about meeting people. And just like people on LinkedIn, you know, who are hyper into networking, I feel like he's like, it's almost like a hobby at this point. Like it's, he's, you know, these guys are kind of retired really. And like you say, they're kind of dilettantes. They don't, they don't have a, like a day job. They're, this can be almost thought of as like a bit of a hobby for them, which is to somehow be influential, somehow to be in the public eye and to be in the corridors of some kind of influence. Um, well, that's where so they I, that, wear that's kind of... jackets, Matt. 
That's, that's why they wear the jackets. <laughs> that's why they wear the jackets. Yeah, that's yeah. what I assumed. Yeah, but who so knows? Who knows? I, well, I, I, the last corollary to that, Matt, that I'll mention is our friend Sam Harris went on Majid Nawaz's platform to have a, a long conversation with him. And anybody hasn't noticed, Majid Nawaz has absolutely went down the conspiratorial rabbit hole and not in a subtle way. It's it's extreme. So one, it was interesting to see Sam go and have a conversation with him, given some of the statements that have been, been made. But I, I actually do think it was an error of sorts, because one of the things is that it was on Majid's content paywall, right? So it's generating subscribers for Majid. So even if it was a knockdown to be it, it Sam is, is kind of giving Majid free publicity. And then secondly, the conversation. So it isn't that Sam completely agrees with everything that Majid says. He pushes back at various parts and stuff, but He's fundamentally uninformed about Majid's position. He thinks he knows some things, but he doesn't know exactly, right? And they get hung up on on various details. And Majid is relatively effective rhetorically at adjusting his statements to make it more palatable. And Sam does, to his credit, you know, point out various inconsistencies and and logical leaps and whatnot but it comes across as like a reconciliation of sorts and then Mm. sam and majid talk a bit about what a shame it is you know that they didn't have these kind of conversations earlier and that sam you know expresses regret about not discussing these things with brett uh, despite various Mm. efforts and it just it gives the impression that like you know, isn't it good? We're all able to sit down and despite our disagreements, we fundamentally can stay friends. And and Sam continuously talks about how it's a complicated thing to work out this issue about like friendships and, you know, where, where you disagree. And Matt, I don't know, but, but to me, like the fact that Brett Weinstein and Majid are vocal conspiracy theorists and anti-vaccine advocates, it's not the kind of thing that you should try to paper over with like friendly conversations or or trying to you know find the the common ground that you can you can you know Mm. find the best version of their position and and just like ignore the bits where they're going a bit crazy about soros or Mm. that kind of thing and yeah it just it strikes me as an illustration of the limitation about you know the idw type approach which is still remains very fixated on interpersonal relationships and and all that kind of stuff, despite claims to the counter. It does seem quite futile, doesn't it? Because like someone like Majid, now he's he's just an example. There are like hundreds of people like him. Like they're never going to change their mind. Like they're never going to have a chat with someone like Sam Harris and actually genuinely go, oh, yeah, maybe I've lost the plot a bit. Like that's never going to happen. Like you say, they'll moderate the tone of their thing depending on who they're talking to. So it it just feels fundamentally futile, and it's I'm not having a dig at Sam here. I mean, I I come across this myself when you know you and I get invited to have a debate with so and so, or you know hash it out with so and so, and I go, well, if I don't, if I think they're just fundamentally like a waste of space, 
then I, I can't think of any reason why I should be talking to them. It just feels like it's a pointless exercise. See, um, well, I, I have a slightly more indulgent perspective maybe about the potential benefits that can be had. But I think it relies on you having prepared and knowing the rhetoric of the person. And I'm not saying even if you do that, it doesn't mean you'll be successful, right? But if you haven't done that at all, you haven't spent even a night to go through the person's views and common arguments and stuff, you're going in completely blind then. And they can say, I didn't say that or, you know, whatever. And you don't know, right? And I, I'm just like, I, it is a constant amazement to me how many people have these kind of, you know, confrontations or like debate things, but they don't do basic research about who the person is or what they've said on a, a topic. And it's really common. It's really common, including with people that like come on the podcast or whatever, that they haven't done basic research. And there was an example, a kind of a example recently where somebody was Googling the person interviewing them in the middle of the interview. And you're just like, why didn't you spend five minutes before that to, mm. you know, before the interview to do this? What? Yeah. Anyway. That's, anyway. Anyway. That's, that's a whinge of the week. This is my whinge of the week uh, about that. <laughs> do some research. Stop treating having a nice conversation or dinner with someone like it's some magical, fucking uh, unbelievable. Like it's absolutely mundane. It's normal to be able to sit down and not like spit all over someone's face and slap them <laughs> around, right? That's what normal people do, and it's not an achievement that you that you manage that. It's it's actually not great that you could sit down with Alex Jones and completely ignore all the terrible things he's done and have funny jokes over a beer. Like it's the reason people dislike him is all the horrible stuff that he's done and promotes. And that's with Majid. It's not, you can't have a nice chat with Majid. It's Majid is a rank conspiracist promoting misinformation and anti-vax rhetoric. That's the problem. Okay. Got it. Got it. And you finished your whinge. That whinge is over. We're at 30 minutes it's now. It's yeah, done. It's done. It's, it's, it's filed. Filed for this week. I get winger of the week for this week. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I win. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, well, that's, and maybe now is a good time to turn to a non-winger, Matt. A, no. <laughs> a person who. Did you who, do your research on Matt Johnson? Did you check him out? Did you dig up any, find out any dirt on him there, Chris? I've got a dossier. <laughs> dossier. Uh, yeah, but, but actually, yes, it, I did do research and beforehand you know it's yeah. it doesn't just a check. take that long just a check just, yeah just a, yeah just a cursory glance yeah. I, I read his book or, or most of it yeah. mm. i i know he was interviewed by Shermer. i know he's contributed to yeah that's Glenn right don't don't whatnot. don't throw you that know. dead cat at our feet it's fine yeah. you can talk someone can talk to michael Shermer to promote their book it's fine. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> we won't hold it completely against them. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Well, anyway, on that note, let's turn to Matt Johnson. Okay, okay Chris. Chris. So, uh, so uh, with us today, today, we've uh, joined, joined by, by Matt, Matt Johnson. Johnson. And uh, so thanks, so thanks for coming, for coming Matt. Matt. Um, Matt, Matt, you're, you're a, 
uh, freelance, freelance writer, writer, I think, is, is the best way to describe it. it. You write, write for a whole bunch of um, online publications, Colette, uh, The Bulwark, uh, Persuasion, a bunch of things. Um, but, um, but of course, uh, most, most recently, you've been working on a book, a book about, about Christopher, Christopher Hitchens, Hitchens, how Hitchens, Hitchens can, can save the left, I think, is, is the title. Is the title? Um, yeah, is there anything else about yourself you'd like to say? Nope, that pretty much covers it. Matt, can cool. I just say that it's the bulwark, bulwark, not the bulwark, the bulwark. It's worse than the matrix. I think I think I'm I'm closer to bulwark than bulwark. It does, uh, it does, sound, oh, no. it does sound more. Uh, it does sound. Am uh, I wrong? A little bit more. Well, pronunciation is not your ballywick, Chris. So this is know, true. I wouldn't worry. The, about. The, the, well, yeah, it's not as bad as the matrix. So well, whoever's right, that's. That's fine. We can let the people decide. But um, all right, the ball work. <laughs> the ball work. Yeah. So, um, so um, Matt too, or Johnson. How about I call you Johnson? You can call me Brown. Um, what What made you decide you wanted to write this book about Hitchens? Have you been interested in it for a long time? Uh, yeah. So I've been reading Hitchens forever. I mean, since I was a freshman in college and I was, I was probably attracted to him for, um, his <laughs> guruish tendencies. I mean, I just think he's, he's such a brilliant communicator and such an eloquent guy, you know, and there, there are many YouTube videos with titles like Hitchens slaps down opponent X or Y, or, um, you know, there's just this like endless profusion of videos of him burning people. And I think that's why, like, somebody who's is just getting into college and, and just considering, like, the possibility of becoming a writer might be interested in Hitchens. Um, but, yeah, as, as I grew older and as I started to develop some ideas of my own, I just noticed that Hitchens' principles, um, especially, like, his commitment to universalism, I would say, um, really struck me as... as um, the sort of political direction I wanted to take. I was, I was really heavily influenced by Peter Singer early in college. And I just saw Hitchens's view that like the United States should be the, the anchor of, you know, a, an international system that, that can address human rights violations and that can sort of provide security and stability. Um, it, it seemed like the political correlate to that sort of universalist idea that, that, you know, we should we should try to tear down national and tribal barriers to the extent possible, and you know, so th- it just it was just a series of things that that kind of came together and made me think that Hitchens would be an interesting uh, conduit to talk about a lot of stuff that that I really already cared about. So, your book, Matt, came out at the, uh, when the tail end of last year, or more? Uh, it came out in February on, on ah, Valentine's okay. Early. Day. Strangely enough, and. The year before, Ben Burgess had a book, right? The philosopher Ben Burgess, uh, Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, what how he went wrong, and why he still matters, right? It was yes. So the how he the, went wrong. That sort of sounds like a sounds like a British construction to me more than a how he went wrong. Yeah, he's a wrong and <laughs> how he became a wrong and but um. So I'm, I'm just curious. Um, were yourself and Ben Burgess in dialogue at all over the topic since it's, you know, uh, uh, two books coming out in the space of a year on a thinker that um, was was popular, but, you know, has not been really focused on that, that much in the past, uh, you know, five to ten years since he passed. Um, uh, yeah, just curious, did you have any interactions with Ben and, and maybe your 
two books, if you have read his book, uh, how would you distinguish the approach? Um, yeah, they're very different books. I actually reached out to Ben and asked if I could take a look at his uh, when I discovered that, that he was working on it. And he kindly uh, sent me a copy. We actually did a podcast together with Iona oh. Italia. So it was her two for tea, like Aereo magazine pod, uh, podcast. And we actually did a trial run that went quite poorly. <laughs> we just ended up yelling at each other about foreign policy for about two hours. So we did a we did a redo. And that's the version that you can actually find um, if you look at the library of two for tea episodes. Um, but yeah, we, we disagree very fundamentally. And I think we, we just approached it entirely differently. He actually like constructed the book around a series of debates that Hitchens did. Um, whereas I just sort of talked about him more generally, but I mean, Ben's a act, he's a socialist and he, he's one of those people who thinks that Hitchens' politics became increasingly deranged after the end of the cold war. And then after September 11th, he just thinks he just kind of took this horrendous neoconservative imperialist turn. So yeah, Ben and I don't agree on much. I think he's a really sharp guy and I actually do like his brand of left-wing politics in one sense because i think it's very anti-identitarian i mean i think he's really good on like free speech issues you know he wrote a book called give them an argument about how like people on the left shouldn't try to silence people like ben shapiro they should they should actually i think there's like a picture a cartoon picture of ben shapiro on the cover of the book so yeah i think in that sense he's sort of in hitchens's tradition you know because hitchens was a first amendment absolutist and all that um but yeah we we definitely do not uh, share many political positions. <laughs> well, that's that's interesting. Maybe it's a fitting tribute that, that you know you would have a heated. <laughs> it, it, um, it did make it did make a certain kind of sense. Yeah, I think we just yeah. decided that the audience would tire of the because uh, it kind of got away from Hitchens and just turned it into an argument. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. happened on our podcast before, but we've never not what? released <laughs> the result. So tribalism. I, I did listen to that episode. Um, that the one that made it to air um with with you and uh, i enjoyed that so i mean when i think of Hitchens, i was the same i think you know i think there's a there's an aspect to his output at least the stuff that gets memed and youtubed and stuff like that which is you know the sort of rhetorical flair and the hit slaps and the great one-liners but it seems like you're more interested in what underlies that 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 rhetoric um, yeah exactly yeah, so you, how would you describe this universalism or this sort of political or philosophical stance that he's got? Yeah, it's one of those words that I probably use too often in the abstract, and I think most people are probably wondering like what exactly I mean about it. I mean, they're just different. They're different lenses through which to view it. I mean, I think he was very committed to individual rights, so I, I cover identity politics pretty extensively in the book. The chapter is titled Sinister Bullshit, so to give you some idea of what I think about it. But um, he, he just, he really didn't like the idea of speaking from a position of identity based authority. He didn't like it when people would say, you know, speaking as a gay man or speaking as a, you know, cause he always just thought that points should be universally intelligible to anyone. And that didn't mean I'm, I'm really at pains to point out that it didn't mean he didn't think we should address, you know, systemic racism or, or like issues of inequality in society. I mean, he was actually in support of reparations, for example. There's a, a debate between him and Glenn Lowry that you can find in the uh, C-SPAN archives where he's actually arguing in favor of reparations. So, um, yeah, that that form of uni- universalism has always appealed to me. And then there's just the internationalism. I mean, he just thinks that the United States needs to be very heavily engaged in the world. And I, 
you know, <laughs> coming off of Iraq and Afghanistan, it, obviously the United States took a turn inward. And that's one of the reasons why Obama was elected. He ran against uh, the Iraq war. But, you know, it, the invasion of Ukraine is a good reminder that um, you can't you can't really get away from the rest of the world. So I've always just I've always admired both of those elements of, of Hitchens's approach to, to politics and, and philosophy. And I do think that the underlying assumption is just that we should value everybody's life, you know, equally. It's it's a one to one. You know, it doesn't matter if, if the suffering is taking place in sub-Saharan Africa or if it's in Iraq or if it's in Detroit, you know, it should it should matter to us mm. equally. So yeah. that's that's sort of, you know, and I know that those are really broad brushes, but that's that's probably the best way to summarize it briefly. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like obviously times have changed a fair bit since Hitchens was was active and the kinds of hot topics has moved on in a way. I think when Hitchens was railing against that kind of identitarianism and I guess a kind of relativism, like that was in vogue perhaps more on the left, but at least the impression that I get amongst the people that are more left than 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 me, um, Aaron Rabinowitz of Embrace the Void is our, is our touchstone for this kind of thing. I mean, he, he describes himself as a, what, what's the phrase, Chris? A moral... Not absolutist. What's, what is he? No, describe? realist. Realist. Yes. He subscribes to moral realism. And that seemed, which is kind of similar to how you describe that kind of universalism of Hitchens. So, so the same yeah. sort of Hitchens. It's very anti relativistic. Yeah. 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 And it seems like that, that actually describes the left more generally now, where there is less, oh, you know, you see it this way and I see it that way. And who can say? Whereas there's much, it's much more, no, no, this is, this is absolutely the right thing to do. And if you don't agree with that, then you're just, you're just morally wrong. <laughs> then I guess the other way in which things have moved on a bit is that, like, you know, there was that great withdrawal, obviously, from American interventionism after the various happenings in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, you know, since then, of course, we've seen Russian imperialism and there's still debate, but um, I, it seems to me there's much more consensus now on the center left of, uh, of yeah, interventionist yeah. policy. So that's Europe. a great, that, that's a great point. It's actually, that's, it's good to make that point just because I really don't want to generalize about the left too much. I mean, right now the German green party is more interventionist than, you know, many moderate Democrats in the United States. I mean, they were pushing for the deployment of heavy weapons in, in Ukraine. Uh, certainly earlier than Olaf Scholz was, and and certainly earlier than a lot of of leaders throughout Europe were. So, uh, and then yeah, the Democrats I think are ha they have a better record on Ukraine than the Republicans. Although there is a fair amount of bipartisanship in the United States um, around supporting Ukraine, but there's also just a really powerful um, sort of insular dynamic on the right. You know, and you just have to look at Tucker Carlson's monologues, which have. <laughs> thankfully come to an end, <laughs> at least for the time being on Fox News, uh, to just see this this strain of, of sort of isolationism in American politics. And that, that that's something that's really become more prominent on the right since the Trump era began, because um, it, it just used to be, you know, it used to be that the, the right's big problem, big political liability was probably like overextension or sort of sympathy with neoconservatism or, you know, however you want to describe it. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that the left has, has a, a complicated record on some of these issues and, you know, I mean, even figures like Bernie Sanders versus Corbyn, um, 
they, they demonstrate that the left has just always been dynamic. Like a lot of people would say, you know, Corbyn is the, the British Sanders and vice versa. But Sanders actually supported the intervention in Libya initially. Um, he supported the intervention in Kosovo. And that's the sort of thing that, that you could just couldn't imagine uh, Corbyn supporting. So, yeah, and this, and this all gets back to the, the general principle that, it, you know, maybe I'm too sympathetic toward the Iraq war, which <laughs> there are very good arguments against, and there's no doubt. But I, I still think that even if you despise that war and you think it was the biggest mistake that of American statecraft, you know, in, in 50 years, uh, you it's pretty easy to see that Hitchens came at it from a liberal point of view. He came at it because he supported the Kurds, uh, because he recognized that Saddam had riveted this horrible tyranny on the Iraqi people, you know? So it's just, uh, yeah, I think these are, these are conceivably left-wing positions (laughs) that that a lot of people will regard as reactionary or right-wing positions, but you know, politics is kind of complicated. Things have changed though a lot. It was kind of just say you guys, you're, the line you guys seem to take on some of this stuff is refreshing to me because like, you, you, you're, you both know Bob Wright, um, and and I really, I really like his stuff. I love the book Non-Zero, had a huge influence on me. But it, it annoys me when he has Max Blumenthal on his show, and he he just kind of uncritically chats with the guy, and I think he does it because he sees that that people like me will run him down. I mean, not that Robert Wright knows who I am. But a lot of people will say, oh, this guy's an apologist for dictators. This guy is an apologist for real imperialists in the world. Um, you know, and I think he sees that as like this effort to silence dissenting voices in the United States. If there's one thing Robert Wright hates, it's the blob. You know, it's, it's yeah. like the American foreign policy consensus. But I, I just appreciate the fact that I, you, it seems like you guys um, don't have much patience for the Blumenthal's of the world, for the gray zones of the world. Uh, and I just think that's I think that's necessary. Like it's. Hey, no matter what you think about U.S. foreign policy, you know, going on media junket tours in, in uh, Assad, Syria is just hideous. And it's just the sort of thing that, you know, Hitchens, you can imagine him pillaring that sort of thing. So anyway, uh, that's that's just something I noticed a while back when I was first getting into the uh, DTG content. <laughs> yeah, that, it, like you, we have a lot of time for Bob, well, but I think it's fair to say, as we've addressed with him, that we strongly disagree with his take and approach on on foreign policy issues. And as you highlight, the issue around figures, outlets like the gray zone loom large. And I would also say the inverse of that, of the kind of un, uh, unwarranted or not fairly di- distributed. What do you call that one? Like... Uh, People distribute too much charity to one side and like the Bellingcat, on the other hand, is treated with barely veiled disdain. But but, scorn, absolutely. Yeah, but Bellingcat, you know, in in terms of transparency or finances and all that kind of thing is a light year away from the gray zone and far less reprehensible to my mind. But actually that might lead to a point which I'd be interested to hear. So I know how, or I think I know how Hitchens would respond to um, you know, Robert Wright's view about you, Ukraine and, and so on. And indeed, he had debates with Robert Wright, right? yeah. um, mainly about religion, but I, um, I don't think you need to uh, stretch the imagination to imagine his reaction. But I am more curious about how you think he would have reacted 
to the kind of guru ecosystem or the intellectual dark web had he have lived for that period because he was very friendly with many of the people that were would become central to that you know sam harris and douglas murray um those kind of people and as you noted he he certainly advocated a kind of free speech absolutism position which at least in theory, many of those figures also champion. I would yeah. take a strong issue that they actually are championing that in any way, but at least they claim to. Um, so it, it's interesting because you have a lot of people who claim that Hitchens would have had no truck with a figure like Jordan Peterson. They would have called him out for the shallow charlatan that he is or something like that. And on the other hand, you have people who seem to suggest that, no, he would have been there alongside the Weinsteins and Douglas Murray <laughs> on stage. Um, so I'm curious where you think he would have landed had he been around for the intellectual dark web and, and just the modern online ecosystem. Yeah, well, there's there's always sort of a standing caveat to everything I say regarding what's happening in the world today. And I just, I just can't speak for Hitchens and he was a very yeah. unpredictable guy in many ways. So, um, I, you know, I, you have to take everything I say here with a big grain of salt, but I will say when I look at some of the weird intersections, um, between the heterodox folks and some of the people who I'm almost convinced Hitchens would have absolutely despised. I have to say that I, I, I would imagine he would have been pretty ruthless in, in either, ridiculing or just outright condemning some of these people. So just for example, Tucker Carlson's out at Fox News. Um, I noticed there were there were a lot of like Fox News obituaries for him. Yeah. You know, like Matt Walsh came out and said, you know, you, you have to understand how decent, how fundamentally decent this man is. You know, when I was just a wee blogger at the Daily Caller or wherever he was, I don't know where he was, you know, Tucker Carlson reached out to him and said, I love your work. And that just that just demonstrates like how decent he was and, and how he was willing to take a, a fellow conservative writer under his wing. And then like Brett Weinstein said, you know, no matter what you think about Tucker Carlson, he had the power to unify Americans around um, some, some dangerous ideas. Like he tweeted this out after mm. Tucker lost his job at Fox news. And I, I just thought, yeah, he's the most divisive figure imaginable. I mean, who he's unifying people around toxic xenophobia and, and around nationalism of the most base and, and sort of like vintage Lindberghian kind. So it's just, you, you just, it, if Hitchens saw Weinstein say that, or if he was on stage with him and he said something like that, I, I just can't imagine that Hitchens would say, oh yeah, absolutely. Tucker, he's a, he's a brilliant guy. It's, it's funny because Hitchens actually was friends with, with uh, Tucker Carlson. He, he apparently respected him as a writer and urged him not to go into television and told it, like, it, there was an interview on C-SPAN where he talks about this and he, he co-edited a book called, um, I think, Left Hooks and, and Right Crosses, which is supposed, it's like a left-wing writer and a right-wing writer tried to choose essays from the other side and choose, like, decide, you know, what are some of the best polemics out there. And I guess Hitchens chose some essay that Tucker Carlson wrote. Um, but that's, uh, that's really pre- uh, Tucker's turn. I mean, I, I, I just think he's, I just think he really has become uh, a reactionary and, and like hideously <laughs> isolationist xenophobic figure. So, yeah, I mean, to the extent that there's crossover between the um, guru sphere and um, people like Carlson, I think Hitchens would have definitely condemned it. Um, 
tough to say what you'd have to say about somebody like Douglas Murray. I think they were, they were friends as well. They obviously agreed um, about the um, excesses of radical Islam and about the uh, authoritarianism and much of the Muslim world and, and just the authoritarianism that can be found in the texts themselves. So, you know, you, you, you look at something like Charlie Hebdo and it's just not hard to imagine what Hitchens would have had to say about it. You know, he wouldn't have taken the Greenwald route, <laughs> which was to publish a series of anti-Semitic cartoons and the intercept and, and, and declare that this is some kind of like challenging free speech exercise, you know, Hey, let's see, let's see just how far you can push it in the Western media. You know, let's see if the same people defending Charlie Hebdo's Islamophobia, which is how he would have described it. Let's see if they're okay with this expression of free speech. And here's a series of anti-Semitic cartoons, but of course, nobody uh, blew up the offices of the intercept. Nobody showed up at, at his doorstep wielding a machine gun. Um, so yeah, it's just, I, I think Hitchens was pretty consistent. I, I don't think he cared about stepping on people's toes. I don't think he, he would have, um, joined the intellectual dark web. You know, I, I, he, he was just, he was too independent for that. And he really kind of relished talking shit on his own side. I mean, there's a famous video of him flipping off the audience, uh, Bill Maher's audience, you know, and I just think it was something he, he loved to do. So yeah, that's, that's, that's probably my best, uh, <laughs> My best guess yeah. as to what he'd have to it, say about the guru sphere. Like you say, it's difficult to imagine because we're stuck with Hitchens as he as he was. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that we cover who get progressively more insane or or take, you know, strange turns, right? The, even Nobel Prize winners are are prone to it, um, you know, later in their career. But on the other hand, there are People and I suspect that Hitchens may have been one of them, who end up fairly well formed by the time they're in their thirties or forties, and they, for better or worse, they don't really change. They have takes on different topics, but you know, Nassim Taleb, he might be against GMOs and he might be, you know, against Ukraine apologetics, but all of it comes from the basis of his like grumbly personality and like belief that he's the only one that understands statistics. So I get the feeling that uh, whatever Hitchens take on, on COVID would have been that he wouldn't have had any truck with apologetics for Russia in the Ukraine war. Like that, that seems very unlikely. Yeah. Um, that one's, you actually have just a direct <laughs> record. I mean, he, he was writing a lot about Putin's aggression and chauvinism and imperialism. Um, you know, regarding Georgia, regarding um, things that had happened when he was still alive. So I, I think it's pretty obvious what line he would have taken on the invasion of Ukraine. And I, I just I do think that he would have had a lot of contempt for people who fancy themselves left wing, but who seem to think that like a handshake deal at the uh, end of the Cold War between um, Gorbachev and, and like James Baker should permanently determine the geopolitical geopolitical makeup of Europe. You know, like it's just like the, there's like this constant refrain on the left, you know, where people will say, yeah, um, we agreed not to expand NATO and we agreed that these countries would be neutral and they'd stay in Russia's sphere of influence. But it's just like what, what kind of left winger doesn't care about self-determination or the democratic aspirations of Ukrainians? Um, I mean, even before the invasion, uh, if you like pew does global attitude surveys and they asked everybody in Europe, you know, how much do you trust these world leaders? And in Ukraine, an overwhelming majority majority did not trust Vladimir Putin, you know? 
So I, it's just, it's just, it, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem left wing at all. It doesn't seem liberal at all <laughs> to, to apologize. I mean, even if you're not apologizing for Putin and you know, that, that kind of language can be a little risky and it, it can sound a little McCarthyite. I understand that. That's where I'll like give Glenn Greenwald the benefit of the doubt. Um, but I don't have to call somebody an apologist for Putin to say that they're, they're emphasizing the wrong thing. They're obsessing over NATO expansion. They're obsessing over um, the West's crimes. They bring up Iraq when Russia invades Ukraine. It's, it's bizarre. It's, it's, a, it's a deflection tactic. Um, yeah. But yeah, I can see what line I, I think you would have taken. Yeah. There's some other lines I'd like to put on, but there's one where we might disagree on some aspects that might be interesting to cover. And you can correct me, Matt, if I characterize your position wrong, but you described yourself as like a free speech absolutist in some respects, or like that the free speech is is central, and that's part of what attracts you to Hitchens. And in the same way, like Brand Burgess, for the various political disagreements, you would agree mostly with his kind of stance on lack of censorship, right, on on social yeah. media platforms. So I think Matt and I won't speak for Matt, but he can agree or disagree that we're, I'm broadly in favor of freedom of speech, of course, the right to it things. And I, I actually do hold the slightly unfashionable position about it, it being useful and productive to engage with people across political divides, but also in including people that are potentially outside the the Overton window. But I think if you do that, you have to be very careful in what you're doing and, and consider it. I do think issues of platforming apply dependent on the size of your platform and all that kind of thing. Like somebody with Joe Rogan, I've, size of audience, I think has much more responsibility than a random YouTuber with like a thousand followers or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah, but, for sure. Um, but when I look at... Twitter now under Elon, right? Or when I dig into the Alex Jones case and all of the various horrors that unfold there, I can't say that I find myself favoring any environment which wouldn't have moderation and which would not penalize people for causing harm and potentially those that would foment campaigns of hate. Like I... Mm -hmm. I think that all social media platforms end up grappling with those and all sort of public debates do as well. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, would your principle towards free speech extend to that Alex Jones should be freely accessible on all platforms? Would it extend that far or are there edge cases that you also would want to remove or limit yeah. access to? Well, you, I, I mean, it's interesting that you use the example of Alex Jones because I actually wrote a piece recently for an online magazine called The Free Thinker. I think it's called The Free Thinker. Sounds very heterodoxy. But um, it, it was about Hitchens and his position on free speech. And I, I actually will say the concept of free speech absolutism probably isn't terribly useful. Um, I actually liked it when he would call himself a First Amendment absolutist. I thought that was a, a really good distinction. Um, so if you if you do take the view that like uh, the neo-Nazis should be allowed to march through Skokie, Illinois, because it's their First Amendment right to do so. And we have a responsibility, um, you know, to uphold the Constitution, then that that seems like an eminently defensible position. But Hitchens's 
attitude toward free speech was probably more radical than mine. Um, for example, he always defended the right of David Irving to publish. And he's, he's a Holocaust denier and, and kind of a monstrous figure. And um, I think it was St. Martin's Press that had agreed to publish a book he'd written and then they um, rescinded that offer after agreeing to publish it. And Hitchens thought this was an outrage and he said it was a disgrace and that they should follow through with their original commitment. And his basic argument was just that, you know, readers should be treated like adults. They should be allowed to make their own determinations about content. You know, it doesn't matter what the guy's political views are. He still might have something to contribute, which is sort of what I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of sounds like Mill's argument for, for free speech. You know, it's it's the right of the speaker to speak and the right of the audience to hear and, and our civil society. Oh, Matt, sorry. I hit the, the mute button by accident there. I meant to hit a mind. Could you unmute yourself? I'm back. It's sorry. Sorry. I was, yeah. I was breathing heavily. So I went the couple yeah, of well, You're, you're censoring me. It's the disc. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what you think about free speech, isn't it, Chris? Just mid speech, you know? Yeah. <laughs> please, please continue. Uh, I just ignore that that occurred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. No problem. But yeah, I actually, I did use the example of Alex Jones and in, in the article I wrote about Hitchens. And I, I actually think he would likely say, yes, keep Alex Jones on Twitter, uh, allow him to speak. You know, our society should be grown up enough to resist him. But, you know, this is a guy who was actually like sicking his mob on grieving parents who had lost children uh, at Sandy Hook. I mean, this guy's a monster. And if I ran Twitter, if I was responsible for content moderation on Twitter, I'd kick him off. I'd have absolutely no problem doing so. So I, I actually wouldn't call myself a free speech absolutist. Just I, I just don't think an absolute position is is terribly helpful. Uh, the, the chapter on free speech in the book, to the extent that I'm I'm putting my view forward, it's it's a concern that I have for self censorship, which seems much more pressing today than other forms of censorship. I mean, that's what's so funny about like the. Is it Weinstein's or Weinstein's? I think it's Weinstein's. Weinstein's, but we say Weinstein's. It is Weinstein's. Oh, so it's Weinstein. Yeah. It's like Einstein. Yeah, Einstein, Weinstein. Makes sense. But anyway, um, they, like when they talk about actual top-down censorship or, or people in power who are like uh, contriving to silence them and you know prevent them from winning Nobel Prizes or whatever, um, like it, it does make me laugh just because we live in such an obviously free society. I mean, we don't live in the Soviet Union. We don't live in Iran. Uh, we can express ourselves pretty readily. Um, Matt, you know, Matt Taibbi and, and the Twitter files expose notwithstanding. I don't think that there's a whole lot of terrifying government censorship, but I do think there's a lot of self-censorship. And, you know, Hitchens wrote about Islam frequently. He was very um, heavily impacted by the, the Rushdie fatwa. And I do think that what the fatwa revealed about Western liberal civil society is pretty alarming. I mean, it's... it's it, it's not possible to imagine a play like the book of Mormon um, ending up on Broadway about Islam. Like it's just, it's really hard to imagine that happening. And it's not that I think that this is like something we should be obsessing over, or it's, it's not that I think that we need to um, make, make Islam like some major focus of our politics. I've actually witnessed how people like Donald Trump and, you know, populist authoritarians in Europe will use anti-Muslim bigotry and demagoguery, uh, to, to, you know, scare people and, and retain power. Um, so I, I recognize that there are massive pitfalls to making this point. 
But at the same time, you know, like when when Yale University Press wanted to publish a book called The Cartoons That Shook the World about the about the um, Danish cartoon controversy, they weren't allowed to publish pictures of the cartoons. I just you just see this over and over again. And it's, it's really worrying that we will silence ourselves at the drop of a hat. And it makes me think that we would be willing to do it in the future. And it's just I think it was sort of like it was like this test case for Hitchens and he, he just didn't like what he saw. So to that extent, I think um, I think his his writing about free speech and self censorship is still really salient, and it still really matters. Um, George Packer gave a speech about Hitchens when he won the Hitchens Prize. There's a Hitchens Prize. I don't know if you guys knew, but there's an organization called <laughs> hey. the Dennis and Ross or v- Dennis and Victoria Ross Foundation, and they they give out the Hitchens Prize every year. And um, his speech was really good. And he just, it was called the enemies of writing. And he was basically saying that there's a lot of pressure to conform to certain groups. There's a lot of tribalism in our society. And like when you have tribalism, you'll say some things and you won't say other things. You don't want to step on people's toes. You don't want to be ostracized from your own group. Um, So yeah, I I just think, I think that that's an issue worth focusing on. But, you know, does that mean I think everybody should have a platform all the time or that I think publishers should lend their imprimatur to monsters like, Alex Jones. I mean, definitely not. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I, I actually do think that's probably something of a blind spot for Hitchens. Um, because yeah, f- free speech absolutism is, uh, it's probably just unworkable, honestly. I mean, it would just become 8chan. Twitter would become 8chan very quickly <laughs> if you allow yeah, them to just yeah. allow whoever to publish whatever, you know. That seems like it gradually so, is. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, it, it does. So a friend of, yeah, a friend I mean, of mine, a friend of mine's on Twitter and he like it's since the Musk era began, he says he's just seen really strange stuff. For one thing, I see a lot of Musk content. I see a lot of people engaging with Musk. I see this weird Musk reply guy all the time. Um, who's also into Dogecoin and he says crazy things about like Epstein. I don't know, but, um, it's, it, and my friend said he, he saw, he starts like seeing these videos of people fighting on Twitter much more often, just like, like physical fights. And he's like, where's this coming from? Um, I don't, I don't remember yeah. ever like inserting myself into the algorithm to the extent where I'd get like this really weird content, but you know, I don't actually know how the algorithm works, but uh, yeah, it's kind of alarming. I've seen weird. Qualitatively, weird I can report the same thing. I now see tons of like vids that go hard fight yeah, <laughs> videos yeah. and and like, uh, yeah, and Elon Musk's cadre of uh, like, you know, favorite accounts seem to be high up in the algorithm. And and there doesn't seem to be that much mystery about it because all the reports are that Elon specifically asks for, mm-hmm. for you know, particular accounts that he likes to be boosted and and himself primarily amongst it. It's, a, it's a, one of those weird things that like there's a certain... You know, I, I feel like a lot of public intellectuals previously were probably just as, um, you know, shallow and, and narcissistic, but they at least had the decency to hide it <laughs> publicly. <laughs> right. But but with right. like the Elon era, the contemporary guru era, it feels like the the kind of thin-skinned, superficial narcissism is really on display 24 seven, but you know, partly through Twitter feeds, but, but other processes as well. So yeah, like Jordan, look at Jordan Peterson's feed, right? That's a, that is a, it's, it's just like a, a chronicle of intellectual <laughs> decay. Like it's, it's crazy. I've always disliked Peterson. The first article I ever wrote for Quillette was about how impenetrable his arguments about God 
happened to be, I mean, it's just like, I listened to like this lecture series or this um, series of conversations between him, between him and Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just found it. It was just downright impossible to understand what he was saying until he'd say something that was perfectly clear, but terrible. Like atheism mm-hmm. is responsible for all the crimes of the 20th century, which is like the oldest, most boring apologist canard, you know? So it's just, yeah, the, the appeal of Peterson is almost entirely lost on me. I, I used to, I used to kind of see like, cause you know, I guess it's nice to have a uh, male role model who cries all the time, but it's kind of weird that he, he leaves the crying in like in the audiobook version of mm. his, his book. It's like, that seems oddly strategic, you know? And mm. it's just like, and like, yeah, he'll be, he'll be, there'll be a little sign on a paper towel machine in the bathroom and he'll take a picture of it. And it will say, you know, please recycle. And he'll take a picture of it and be like, fuck you woke totalitarian (laughs) like you're not gonna get me like i'm just this is just seems like such a weird neurosis and uh i don't i I wrote one article for uh, the daily beast which is about this it was a video i oh i sent it to you matt uh on twitter uh he he it's like a video essay but i think he was also published somewhere and he's basically talking about how deloitte is like this evil globalist octopus that's uh, taking over the world and you know it's, it's going to force all this like climate regulation down our throats and people will die and there will be revolutions and i was like this is unhinged this is absolutely unhinged this guy and he's just so yeah i don't know he's, he still kind of manages to be pretty mainstream you know like <laughs> yeah i don't know I, I just don't see i don't see stalinism and gender pronouns i just don't yeah yeah i mean that's that's the thing isn't it i mean the world has changed a bit since Hitchens was poodling about. And like, I remember back when Charlie Hebdo was a thing. And I think the, the principles of free speech to me anyway, felt a bit simpler then. Like it was easier for me to just be on board full stop. Yeah. It's, it's quite simple. Free speech is good. Um, self-censorship is bad. H- have an open exchange of ideas and the good ideas will rise to the top because that's what, that's what a democratic free society is all about. And in the current age where the various platforms and the algorithms make our reality, then uh, at least for me, I've become a little bit less idealistic and perhaps a little bit more cynical about the fundamental presupposition there, right? Where someone like Iona Italia would, would, would be a standard bearer for, right? Yeah, which is yeah. that, which is that you have to respect people enough for them to be able to make their own decision about whether or not this is true or whether this is bullshit, holding on to those um, liberal absolutist ideas, you might say. And I just, I mean, when we're seeing the impact of conspiracy theories in the broadest sense, right? Um, Chris and I see it with Dakota Nagurus obviously all the time because these are, these are basically lies and falsehoods and ideologically driven, very strange ideas that are pushed by our gurus and they will all bang the free speech drum at any resistance, I suppose, from a platform or whatever to to just allow them to keep doing their thing. And I don't know, I guess if I look back at Hitchens and I think about where he generally stands, I feel like he's kind of, at least for me, still stands strong when it comes to those sort of principles of globalism and cosmopolitanism and the rule of law and things like that, and to try to be the best version of the Western liberal democracies that we can imagine, right? But when it comes to the free speech, such I feel like I feel like the technology and the, has led us to a situation where maybe those old liberal ideals feel a little bit naive. 
Yep, possibly. I mean, it, it was kind of sad to hear you like summarize the argument really effectively, but with a ton of voice that was like, this is, you know, this is what I used to think. And it's very, uh, <laughs> it's very naive and depressing now how things have degenerated. I mean, I mean, you know, if you could pump out like really compelling propaganda uh, via GPT-4 and just like distribute it a hundred thousands of times more rapidly than it can be distributed now. Is that free speech? Does that count? I mean, I just don't, that's not what Mill was envisioning when he was making the case for like unfettered free speech. So uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you just have to deal with the the reality as it confronts you. Um, I, I do think, you know, to the extent that you see, like I'll find myself in interviews bringing up Milo Yiannopoulos, which feels like it was a different lifetime. I mean, it feels like it was like a different century. Um, but I did, it did bother me to see people so willing to like shout him down or shout down like Christina Hoff Summers or all the, you know, you know, the, the sort of usual suspects. Um, and it, it did seem like cowardice and it, it seems like something Hitchens would, would condemn very readily, you know? Um, but I do recognize how those concerns probably, start to seem sort of uh, trivial i mean compared to just just like just the, the way people flood the zone with garbage now and the way people are so cynically using arguments around free speech to just pump out propagandistic trash i mean and, and then they're so they're so incredibly contradictory and yeah. hypocritical i mean uh, the same free speech warriors who will, will, will decry the disc don't seem to have that much to say about desantis when he's telling schools what they can and can't teach in Florida. And when he's telling Disney that it has no right to express a political opinion, which is, I mean, make no mistake. Yeah, it's Disney, but it's still, it's still uh, a question of free speech, you know? And I think, I think Disney's on really solid footing with its lawsuit. Um, I, I hope it wins, you know, and I, you just see these weird guys like Chris Rufo and they kind of talk like they're at the, you know, the head of the vanguard of some like new cultural phenomenon. It's actually kind of creepy. I mean, for the kinds of people who would say, you know, oh, the left is like neo-Maoist or uh, Marxist or what have you. Like, there are, like he had some exchange with Steven Pinker on Twitter where he's just like, your time is over, old man, and the new guard is taking over. And it's, I was just like, where, where, is this, where is this weird attitude coming from? Where people, are, um, people on the right are, are sounding like these weird revolutionaries and they're saying like, you know, the old, the old uh, model of civil society and civil discourse doesn't work anymore. We've got to legislate. We've got to legislate CRT out of existence because it's so evil, you know? So I, yeah, I mean, you're, we're definitely up against very opportunistic and dishonest and frankly, authoritarian people. And I mean, one, one just general point to make, and I'm not sure if I would assume that with a title like mine, readers probably assume that it's going to be just a like endless broadside against the left. I mean, the whole point of the book is the fact that I think the, the authoritarian right is actually the biggest political threat on earth right now. And I, I think the left is ill-equipped to respond to it properly. Um, and I, I can see the ways in which the right will use the left's excesses and the left's authoritarianism against it. I mean, there's a reason why Trump came up with the 1776 commission or, you know, somebody in Trump's orbit came up with it and shoved it into his mouth and why he called for patriotic education and why, you know, the, it's, because there is there is a there is an illiberal aspect to something like CRT or what have you, and I just think it's really easy for the right to instrumentalize it and use it against the left. So I yeah, I mean I I really enjoyed you guys' um your mini decoding of Matthew Goodwin uh, oh. a couple episodes back um, because yeah. he's he's such a classic case of a guy who's presenting completely standard right wing arguments 
in this weird cloak of heterogeneity and like heterodoxy. Like he's, he's, he's basically just saying, like, I think his, his catchphrase for his Substack is like politics analyzed differently or something. And I'm like, I don't really see what's all that different about the analysis here. Like it's the classic, you're not listening to the will of the people. Brexit was the will of the people. You know, you, you're like all these coastal elites, that would be the terminology in the, in the United States. But you know, the people who are part of the party of Davos to use Bannon's construction or like this is this is like par for the course this is there's nothing new about that i haven't read his book i'll admit but, yeah. that was uh yeah so with with goodwin i the the kind of two-step which which you see a lot is you know his thesis insofar as it's true is like mundane that oxford and cambridge and elite education institutions are overrepresented in the halls of power in the uk and other countries yes definitely mm-hmm. the case in fact pretty pretty much a left <laughs> critique yeah, there right, that, right. That for for decades right and and similarly that media in in certain respects you know has an overrepresentation of of like left wing politics Yes, because a lot of the people in the media, you know, tend creative types tend to lean that way. But but similarly, all of those analyses tend to just like paper over just like very hand wave towards the existence of the massive right wing media ecosystem, which they are on extolling yeah. their their thesis, right? And and Goodwin is not censored. He's invited onto plenty of right wing platforms. He's invited on the, you know, various a couple of left-wing platforms as well. But, you know, in any case, him and figures like him, and it it kind of follows up on the point that you uh, were making. When I listened to a recent episode of Sam Harris, and we're talking about the Twitter files or uh, moderation on Twitter, that kind of topic, and you had Renee DeRest, and you had Michael Schellenberger and Barry Weiss, right? And and actually, a relatively well-conducted, to be it, by those standards, like people did turn taking, and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, it, uh, it were able to express like uh, quite strong differences of opinions. But what came across very clearly to me was that Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger were very strong rhetorically on the reference to freedom of speech, on the you know the marketplace of ideas, and against the repression of even voices they disagree with or whatever. But their facts, their grasp of facts and their like uh, ability to apply those standards consistently across the political domain were, were really weak. And Renee DiResta, by comparison, she knew about the moderation policy. She could talk about, you know, the actual examples and, and highlight the inconsistencies and the claims which weren't accurate. But I, I think to some people that doesn't matter, right? It, it's more the strength of the rhetoric carries the force of the argument and and the fact that you know you saw Matt Taibbi embarrassed recently by Mehdi Hassan. Mehdi Hassan, not somebody I'm hugely uh, a fan of, but it didn't take much, right, for him to point out glaring issues in in the way that Taibbi had covered the yeah. uh, the Twitter files and and yet Taibbi's response to that was you know immediately on the Substack on thing to kind of. Uh, start pointing out, you know, his like kind of catalog of MSNBC errors or or this kind of thing, which which doesn't actually excuse the mistakes that he <laughs> yes. made, right? So, right. I, 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 
Yeah, I just, I find this, and it actually it does tie back into Hitchens, but I, I find this inconsistency of standards and extremely strong rhetoric um, over actual substance um, to be a, like a really unfortunate thing and something that I see a lot of in a heterodox sphere. And, and, and to tie it to Hitchens, so Matt and I watched in preparation um, our, a talk by Hitchens and Tariq Ramadan. Um, and, you know, I've consumed a bunch of Hitchens' previous content as well. But, but I think one thing that struck Matt and I both when we were talking about it is that while there's an undeniable depth to Hitchens, he knows about history, he knows about geopolitics, and, you know, he, he's classically uh, educated, or it seems at, <laughs> at least, but, like, there also is, he's extremely rhetorically powerful, and he doesn't mind relying on rhetorical style arguments. Like in that debate, he talked about totalitarian, like Islam as an, a totalitarian religion. And he said, you know, at our total religion, with, and he said, what's the first start of totalitarianism? Total. And you're like, mm-hmm. that's not, <laughs> that's, that, that's a very weak argument, but it sounded good. So I, I'm curious about, you know, your broader thoughts on that, but in, in particular with Hitchens, He's famed for his debates, and and I think there is substance there. But he was undeniably like a rhetorical powerhouse. So uh, do you ever think he relied too much on that uh, rather than, you know, addressing substantive points when when debating? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Well, I I will say just really quickly um, to tie off the point about Mediasan and and Taibi. I don't know if you saw the first post that that, that Taibi threw up on his Substack, but he he started. I just thought the way he started it was so funny. It was like Mediasan, or I I decided to go on Mediasan's show. If you're reading this now, it didn't go well. It was like this, um, this this really weird sort of like death note or uh <laughs> yeah hit the button when it goes like, well seriously like like yeah I'm, I'm no longer with you if you happen to be reading this now like i just got blasted <laughs> to shreds by medi hassan can, um, can i it, also before we move on from medi hassan i just want to note that like there's plenty of stuff about medi that you can highlight but one thing rhetorically that i thought he did quite well is he infamously had a talk where he he kind of lambasts atheists and he refers to non-believers as cattle and stuff. And it's it's been memed mm-hmm. plenty of times. He's responded to it and said, you know, uh, but one of his lines was, you know, I had some views that I expressed in my 20s. And that speech when, was when he was 29. So so technically <laughs> right. your twenties, yes. Well, I yeah. was like, yeah. way back ancient history. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway. it's funny you it's funny that you mentioned the Mediasan thing and then led into Hitchens's rhetorical flair because uh, Hassan's well known as a, a good debater and, and yeah. somebody you can cut quite a figure uh, in front of the camera. And um, he just wrote a book about like how to win every argument or something. Um, and he's clearly he's, he does seem to approach it like a sport. I mean, I, I really do think he went into the Taibi. I almost I, I actually did feel slightly bad for Taibi because he just seemed like a more normal guy trying to have a conversation like like as if he was sitting next to him in a bar and Medi was just like armed to the teeth with like with the numbers he had the receipts <laughs> uh but anyway it didn't go well for Tybee. yeah so on on hitchens his i think his rhetoric can actually be a distraction a lot of the time uh, i actually end the the book by saying i think a hunter s thompson effect has taken hold in the public imagination of hitchens 
And uh, you, you will encounter like countless stories about Hitchens that seem to follow the exact same script. I mean, this is so well attested that I have to imagine there is some truth to it. But it basically goes like this. They went out to dinner and then turned into a long night of drinking. Then people went back to the apartment and a few more hours of drinking. And at 3 a.m., he goes into his uh, bedroom and he pounds out a 2,000-word essay. And it's about Oscar Wilde. And then he rejoins the party. And then he like ends up in the studio the next day. So it's like this, this weird like personality-based story that it's just I've heard it so many times and read it so many times that it's just like people talking about the man and not really his ideas. Um, but I, I've definitely noticed times when Hitchens's rhetoric clouds what could be a much uh, simpler or, or perhaps like readier at hand point. Uh, one debate I mentioned to you guys was um, one he had with William Lane Craig, uh, who's this well-known Christian apologist. And he's, he's, he's known as, as quite a ferocious debater. And I've never thought I've never thought he was all that compelling, but you know, at the same time, I've never sat on stage with the guy. I'm sure he's. I'm sure it's a, it's a rough, it's a tall order uh, to try to take him on. But Hitchens did seem to have a series of points he wanted to make in that debate, and they were they were very broad. I mean, they just dealt with religion, religion as a social phenomenon, religion as a, a harmful totalitarian phenomenon, and the, the actual subject of the debate was. Um, I mean, it was you know the existence of God. It, it was, it was an ontological debate. And this is like what Craig does. He always, he always sets up debates that serve him well. So when he debated Sam Harris, they debated, uh, like the, uh, like the objectivity of morals. Like, can you have objective morality without God? And if you're going to make the assumption that God exists, then it's a pretty effective locus of morality. And Harris had wrote, written this book called the moral landscape where he was making a very difficult argument that we, ha- there are such things as objective moral truths uh, but it's it's just that there are many peaks, there are many different truths and many different ways to suffer. And it's like, it was kind of a hard, it's a hard argument to make. I think it, it served Craig's purpose as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, there were times in that debate with Craig where I just wanted Hitchens to to just say something like, isn't there an infinite regress, you know, or isn't there like, like to just come up with some of the classics? I just feel like the atheistic arguments that have been advanced for the past few hundred years um, are generally pretty compelling on their own. Here's another example. He, he will say, you know, humans have been on the earth for, let's say, 100,000 years. And for 98,000 of those years, heaven watches with indifference. God sits there with folded arms and lets humans suffer and die and, and live out their lives. And then 2,000 years ago, in, in Bronze Age, uh, Middle East, you know, he sends his son to die. He, he says a human sacrifice saves us all and um, we're supposed to see the light and we're supposed to like accept this vicarious redemption through Christ. It's basically just this like really artfully put um, demonstration of the absurdity of religion, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually get at any of the core arguments um, in, in a way that you know, you'll hear like Shelly Kagan or Bart Ehrman or like these other guys who debate religion, debate um, atheism frequently we'll get at and like I've, I've always found found that sort of unsatisfying I, I i think like hitchens hitchens's polemical power is is really useful i mean i think god is not great is, is a wonderful book i really do um when he says how religion poisons everything in the subtitle like that's something that really upset robert right and you know say oh, does it poison literally everything does it poison chess and coffee and tea and he just like but he's just basically saying that it's insulting people in our most basic integrity and, and capacities. So, you know, I understand the point that he's making with, with the subtitle. 
But yeah, the book's, it's just a great read and it does demonstrate a lot of the horrors that have been brought by religion. But yeah, I, I, he's not a, he wasn't a philosopher. He was a polemicist. Uh, it's, you know, and that's, uh, I don't think that detracts from the ideas he did have and, and the way he put them. I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't think he was an extremely compelling uh, thinker and writer. But at the same time, yeah, he's, I think he, he would reach for, for the rhetorical blow and the sort of like, the sort of pre-prepared um, argument. A little too readily sometimes um and you know, yeah that's i think that's a it's a habit a lot of guru-ish figures have yeah <laughs> but yeah, yeah i might just before you jump in there chris i might mm, go say ahead. something similar which is that in the, the postscript of this interview uh, perhaps with your help matt we will do a little bit of a decoding of this debate about whether or not islam is a religion of peace and you know i approached that listen to it sort of primed i suppose <laughs> to watch out for guru-esque uh, activity, which I, you know, in my recollection of consuming Hitchens' content years ago, I certainly didn't do that. And, um, you know, I'm just curious as to your impression. I think you recommended that one as an example of where Hitchens perhaps wasn't at his at his best, was maybe at his more rhetorical. But I came away from that feeling that, like, I wasn't very much impressed with his interlocutor either. But I think it was a case of exactly what you described, which is Hitchens reaching for statements with a whole bunch of rhetorical flair but without necessarily a lot of depth to it and to be specific i don't think at any point in that debate hitchens really established that there was anything special about islam being particularly unpeaceful right i don't think he established that he he made a bunch of points about religions in general being terrible authoritarian totalizing belief systems he cited a bunch of ways in which uh, islam is bad but the counterpoints to each of those examples he cited, which is, you know, are, are obvious if you think about it, which is that Islam is in modern history has existed in, you know, relatively poorer, much more war-torn, socially disturbed parts of the world compared to Middle England Anglicism, right? So, so the direction of causality there really isn't established. That was the impression I came away from there. Here's someone who's just a great orator, is pulling a whole bunch of great rhetorical points out of his pocket, but it, it didn't feel like it added up to a huge amount to me. Was, was that your impression with that particular debate? Well, with the uh, Ramadan debate, I think it's. I, I think he's in. He's on less firm footing when he's debating a philosopher like Craig, uh, who has constructed a debate around uh, a very limited motion. Um, when it just comes to attacking Islam and attacking the the unique problems of Islam. I think Kitchens has some pretty good points. I mean, he'll he'll mention that it's a younger faith, for example. Um, he'll he'll mention the fact that in you know the Quran is supposed to be printed in Arabic and it's supposed to have like a parallel text in, in English or whatever language it's being translated into. And a lot of people will say, you know, you really can't understand the text unless you can speak Arabic. And Hitchens would say, like, well, the idea that God is a monoglot strikes him as very tribal and dangerous. And I, I, I think I agree with Hitchens. It, it's difficult, but if you look at the way religious fundamentalism works in the world today, if you look at the amount of suffering that's wrought um, by fundamentalism, th there does seem to be a problem with, um, with Islam. I mean, there, it's, just, it's just too widespread. You just have to look at Iran. You just have to look at Afghanistan. Because um, a lot of people will say, oh, Hitchens, Hitchens sort of concocted a civilizational threat 
out of Islam when where none existed. And look at look at what we're facing now. We're facing a rising China. Um, you know, we're climate change. Putin invaded Ukraine. It's it's sort of easy to date Hitchens by by looking at some of the arguments he made about Islam. And it, it, there's just no doubt that the Rushdie fatwa and and September 11th affected him really intensely, and definitely definitely determined like where he would direct a lot of his polemical fire um, in in the last couple decades of his life. But I, I think what's overlooked in some of those arguments is just the sheer number of people who have been stultified by by a very reactionary interpretation of of a religion in the Middle East. And, you know, the number of books that get translated into Arabic versus other languages every year is, is kind of horrifyingly low. And like, it's, you know, so I, I think those are all fair political points to make. But what makes me wonder about Hitchens's approach um, is is the fact that he didn't he didn't seem to care about the consequences of of his political fury because he had a lot of secular Muslim friends or, or at least more secular Muslim friends. He had a lot of liberal Muslim friends. He, he recognized that the only way to actually roll back theocracy in huge uh, swathes of the world is to forge alliances with, with like liberal-minded and progressive Muslims. And you, you have to wonder if he's not undermining his cause by being so brutal, by saying it's a crude plagiarism of Christianity and, and Judaism, and, and by just ripping it to shreds at every available opportunity. It just seems like the wrong way to approach the process of, of building alliances with liberal Muslims. Um, so I, I just think that he was so wedded to the idea that he was going to speak the truth as he saw it, um, come what may, that he wasn't desperately tactical. <laughs> and um, that, that probably makes me sound like a weak-kneed liberal, you know, and I'm sure he'd say, it's not my job to coddle people. It's my job to just say what I view as the truth. But, you know, I mean, here's an area where, since I've been running Robert Wright now, here's an area where I thought that Hitchens was very unfair to Wright. That during their conversation, um, Wright would just say, do you not think it's possible that a drone strike on a, a wedding in, in Yemen, this isn't the exact example he used, but this is like the essence of this point, could drive people to, to uh, you know, take up arms against the United States, could drive people toward extremism, could have very negative and, and you know, horrifying political consequences and hitchens just never accepted that he always said it was just it was just the ideology of um fundamentalist islam that you had to blame and you you shouldn't blame external factors you know because that's it's exculpatory and it's it's forgiving people who who deserve all the blame for their actions and i i just don't think i don't think robert wright was being an apologist for islamic extremism by pointing that out you know and he i think the example he might have used was the uh, major hassan shooting on the military base uh, several years ago this is, this is pretty old news but i just think he was hitchens was too quick to accuse people of being apologists for for really reactionary mm -hmm. and authoritarian ideologies and i think that was part of his rhetorical effect was just like you know i'm just gonna rattle the saber i'm just gonna like slice <laughs> these people up you know, it's it's not how I approach conversation. I I feel like I'm I'm pretty combative and pretty argumentative, but it just it just seems too alienating. It seems like you're you're gonna foreclose on too many um, healthy conversations if you're always just saying like, well, I mean, it's a revolting and crude plagiarism of Christianity. I mean, that's just there's just too many people in the world who subscribe to it and who value it. That I, I just can't I can't imagine saying that to somebody, you know. And you know, as I've gotten older, because I used to be 
sort of the classic new atheist you know there's like the meme of like the the kid with the shirt that says i'm an atheist debate me you know and i was like i was influenced by dawkins and hitchens and, and all those guys um but you know you get older and you meet a lot more religious people and you actually discover that many of them are more intelligent than you and like they're really thoughtful and, and kind and generous and decent human beings and you're just like you can't imagine just just being like you know you you believe in a an idiotic delusion and you know it's 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 embarrassing for you like i just can't like i have i have friends now who who you know are some of my closest friends and they're they're also like pretty staunch believers you know so and I, I just don't think Hitchens was willing to split that difference. And, you know, in Hitchens' defense, I think if he was sitting next to somebody at the bar, I don't think he was just doing this on the stage. I mean, if it was like his best pal and he happened to be religious, I mean, I think Hitchens would say the exact same thing. That, that, that's my, my intuition about like how he carried himself in the world. I don't think there was any like theatrics that weren't just like didn't bleed into his personal life. But, you know, I'm, I'm not really qualified to say that because I, I don't know for a fact, but yeah, you kind of get the sense. Most of the stories about him suggest that, like, if he didn't agree with you about something, he'd, he'd just let you know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty long winded. Uh, you know, it's I, I think it's the way he's treated from the outside that made me think that he's got some, there, there's a guru-ish element to it. I mean, there is an unwillingness in many cases to interrogate uh, the ideas themselves, even the good ones. I mean, I, I just don't feel I don't feel like the case for Hitchens uh, has been made all that well by many of the people who, who like him. And I, whenever I read remembrances of him, um, you know, like on, on his, on the anniversary of his death every year, there's usually a spate of articles about Hitchens. And I just feel like they very rarely engage with, with any of the content of what he wrote. And I think that's just a consequence of his eloquence and, and his showmanship. Um, but I think that's actually a shame, you know, I mean, one thing that worries me about like approaching the subject, you know, at, through the guru lens is that uh, re- listeners will come away with the impression that he was vapid or somehow like he didn't actually have good ideas. Obviously, I don't think that or I wouldn't have written the book. But yeah, mm. <laughs> long winded. But yeah, I no, I, I think you covered a lot. But the, uh, in the in the debate that he had with Robert Wright, I actually think that was one of his worst performances. Robert Wright, to me, like handily kind of addressed most of the points that he was making. And and mainly because, as you said, Robert Wright was willing to make concessions about Mm -hmm. his position and to acknowledge the harms of religion. But Hitchens essentially wouldn't uh, acknowledge any particularly positive aspect that was unique to religions, right? And and as Wright handily pointed out in that debate, well, that's just like you're making your position way less defensible. Like you, you could say religion is very bad overall, right? And, and make that argument. But if you say it never does anything good in the world ever, you're basically almost by definition wrong, right? And, and like he treated right as if right was, as you say, like not necessarily an Islamic apologist, but more like a religious apologist. And mm-hmm. that's, that's not his position really. So. Yeah, that was a, that, I listened to that debate and um, for, find myself in large agreement with Robert Wright. And I, I felt like Hitchens was relying too much on rhetoric. It was less the case in the interview with Ramadan, or the, sorry, the debate with Ramadan, which, like you mentioned, he does both. He's making subs- substantive points and he's using, you know, rhetorical flourishes to make his points land. And there's some way in which you, you can't avoid that, you know, if you're doing public debates and if you're a public speaker, 
there will always be elements of anything that you want to argue effectively that rely on you know rhetorical techniques. But the question which matters is like, is there a substantive argument and support behind that? And in, in the case of Hitchens, I think there was. But I, I was also very glad to hear you acknowledge him as a polemicist, because to me, like somebody who writes an article with the title, Why Women Aren't Funny, right, is, is obviously somebody who's courting controversy. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Helen Lewis wrote about this... Maybe you'll think this is slightly unfair, but I'm I'm interested to see if you think Hitchens fits this mold to some extent. So Helen Lewis talked about um, when she, when she was investigating, you know, kind of guru types, that there was a certain kind of people that were attracted to ideologies which were extreme, right? Like they they might be attracted to hardcore Marxism, or they might be attracted to like uh, strong atheism, or you know, pickup artistry, whatever the case it was. But like, in some sense, you can look at their ideological history and you see this dramatic journey, right, across the ideological ecosystem. You can look at someone like Stefan Molyneux, right, going from like alternative psychology to anarcho-capitalist to hard-right white nationalist, right? Those are like, <laughs> There, there's through lines, but at the same time, it's it's kind of surprising, especially in the space of about 10 years. Now, I'm not comparing Hitchens to a Stefan Molyneux character. I, I don't think that's a fair comparison. But famously, Hitchens, you know, was quite a strong Marxist in his, his younger years of the revolutionary variety. And then mm. towards later in life, people would have, you know, put him more towards the at least neoconservative line in, in geopolitics, right, during the Iraq war and that kind of thing. So um, you've argued, I think, that there's consistency to his ideology underpinning those. But I'm, I'm curious about that journey. Like, how does somebody go from a devout leftist Marxist type to somebody arguing what the Hitchens did later in life and remain consistent underlying it? Like, is there an issue that his fervor was attached to whatever political program that he currently believed in and that that was variable such that, you know, we can't see the last chapter of his life, but if he had become a right-wing reactionary, that he would have been like a very powerful orator for an ideology that fits that could fit into the right-wing or conspiratorial ecosystem? Or, or is there something that you think that means that he could never... I know, again, we're talking hypotheticals, but just like, mm-hmm. I'm wondering how immune you think his approach is to those kind of issues and like the intellectual journey over his career. Yeah. Well, I, I do think he was just just intrinsically attracted to radical politics. And um, the through lines are clear, and I'll, I'll get to the, I'll get to them in just one second. I will say that there were clear contradictions. I mean, uh, you just can't reconcile his support for the Iraq War with his really steadfast opposition to the Gulf War. I mean, any argument that you're going to make about the crimes committed by Saddam Hussein, about the imminent threat posed by Saddam Hussein, um, would apply all the more extensively at the end of the cold war and at the end of the Iran Iraq war and, you know, during the Gulf war. So it, you, you know, th- there was just, there was an obvious shift 
in, in many ways. But I, the commonalities to me are pretty clear. If you go back and listen to um, a debate that, that he took part in in the 80s just about socialism, I thought it was suggestive that he started his speech by sort of summarizing the universalist element of socialism. Um, he, he basically just said, like, we're all part of one human family. Um, international solidarity is the most important thing. And then he kind of got along, got on to the, you know, the more generic socialistic points, like from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. You know, I do think that the argument he made against Henry Kissinger and his argument in favor of a really robust structure of international laws and norms um, can be grafted onto his positions post 9-11 very easily. Um, There was actually an interview he did pre 9-11 when he was he was still out promoting his Kissinger book um, where Saddam Hussein came up a caller said something like uh, we're just as bad as Saddam Hussein you know the sanctions that we've imposed on on Iraq just make us you know, these monsters and Hitchens said no Saddam Hussein is everything that is said about him and he he mentioned the fact that he had sat on an unexploded chemical bomb in Halabja and that, that Saddam Hussein could actually have the sanctions lifted if he wanted to. I mean, if he, he provided unfettered access to, you know, every site that the UN wanted to explore, if he stopped rattling the saber, threatening to invade his neighbors. I mean, people forget that, you know, he, he wanted to invade Kuwait again in the mid 90s, which horrified the international community and required the United States to sort of step in and say, yeah, you really don't want to do that. The outcome will be similar <laughs> to what, what you went through before. But I just think that that desire to have a universal set of standards that all countries are beholden to and that all countries have a responsibility to enforce was a pretty clear consistency. And that's why even when he still was a socialist, even when he still declared to be every bit as radical as, as he had been in the in the eighties and seventies, um, in the nineties, he was he was fully in support of NATO intervention in, in Bosnia, and he was fully in support of of NATO intervention in Kosovo. And yeah, it's just because he thought that powerful countries had a responsibility to prevent egregious violations of human rights. And you know, I think you can draw a pretty clear line. Some of this stuff is from it's lifted from the things Hitchens has written uh you know it's but it is true that he was on sort of a faction of the left um early in his life I mean when he was very young still a teenager that that didn't support the Stalinist invasion of Czechoslovakia for example I mean they they thought that the Russians should get get out of Czechoslovakia and that it was a really horrifying moment for them and I think he saw that the Soviet Union was this dilapidated and and ossified system it was just horrendously repressive he was he wasn't some communist who had to lose all of his illusions you know and, and then find his reason um i think he was always anti-authoritarian i think he, he always despised religion I and mean, he always thought of it as a totalitarian um system of belief you know because there's this unalterable god who, whose judgments can't be appealed and you know and we're all just sort of we all have to submit to his authority you know <laughs> till the end of time um, and, and so I, I just think all of these things and, you know, some free speech, I mean, his, his, uh, response to the Rushdie Fatwa, he sounded exactly like he did when, when, um, the Danish cartoon controversy ripped through the, the world or however you want to describe it. And, you know, I think he would have done the same with Charlie Hebdo and he would have done the same with the, the Paris attacks. These are all positions that the left seems to struggle with the elements of the left, the sort of elements that we've talked about tonight. I mean, like the, the people who um, fancy themselves anti-imperialists, you know, 
Uh, they, they find it very difficult to just roundly condemn the invasion of Ukraine or to roundly condemn Saddam Hussein or the Taliban or Slobodan Milosevic. It's not that they're apologists. They're not all apologists for these people. But it's, it's just that the United States comes first. You know, like the, the criticism of the United States and the West always comes first. And Hitchens started using the word masochism a lot in his last 10 years. And he thought there was this sort of general social and political masochism that led his former comrades to this position. It was just like always looking inward, always like condemning their own system, their own government. Um, and I think I think he regarded that as the, a transition away from socialism because socialism died as a viable political alternative in the world. I think throughout the 90s, Hitchens was, when it came to domestic politics, when it came to, you know, his attitude toward Clinton, um, he, he was very discouraged by the fact that it seemed like this neoliberal consensus had just taken over, you know? And I think a lot of his fellow left-wingers saw the same phenomenon and thought to themselves, like, this this is just there's no radical alternative in the world anymore, you know? So they, they shifted their energy that they had devoted to socialism to this sort of crusade against the West, this crusade against imperialism and and neoliberalism. And I I think that was arrived at genuinely that position. And I think it's a, it's a valuable shift. I I think the left would do well to observe it and, and emulate it in many ways. I don't think he was just looking for radical ideas to hitch himself to. Um, I don't think he was just a contrarian. Uh, I, I, I think he just changed his mind. And he, he would admit that he used to regard, you know, liberalism as sort of this weak need, insipid uh, form of politics. He actually cites a, a really interesting passage from, I think, I think it's a book by uh, Connor Cruz O'Brien. I think so. If that's wrong. Uh, he, cha- to- he changed his mind about the like utility of waterboarding right after infamously mm-hmm. undergoing waterboarding. So, he was someone that was willing to reverse stances. I don't, like, I'm not sure if he was ever, I don't think he was ever in support of waterboarding. I think he, he saw he could advance the argument if he got waterboarded. Um, oh, but he, I thought he started out saying that it was, it was not torture. And then he, he might have been sort of ambivalent about the extent to which it was torture. I, I, yeah, that's actually he's quite clear afterwards. He was very clear <laughs> afterwards for sure. Yeah. And well, I mean, he was you know during during the the Bush wars, you know, he he was a plaintiff in an NSA lawsuit against the Bush administration for warrantless wiretapping. He had these flashes of just sort of like conventional left wing politics that you know he he still held until the end. I mean, he was you know supported universal health care. Um, he supported reparations for the descendants of slaves. I mean, these are like a lot of, a lot of positions that you're not going to see the, a lot of the heterodox people who found their way to the heterodox right holding. I mean, this is one theme of the book is the idea that, um, Hitchens didn't just clear his throat with a couple of like a couple of bromides about how equality is important before getting to his core points about the horrors of identitarianism. You know, and when you were when you guys were talking about uh, Matthew Goodwin, I had to, I, I just had to think about Hitchens's attitude toward the rise of right wing authoritarianism in Europe, even in the 90s. I mean, he wrote about Jörg Haider in Austria and he wrote about these figures who he he regarded as people who were peddling very reactionary and old ideas. But in this like slick new garb, you know, they were basically just saying like, yeah, we just really don't like the inefficiencies and bureaucracy of the EU 
we really just don't. We, we just think immigration needs to be uh, controlled and sustainable and all this stuff. But I mean, there, there are often ugly ideas underpinning those uh, sort of neutral sounding positions or, or, you know, at least inoffensive deodorized positions. And I think a lot of that goes on today where you have people who are making fundamentally pretty ugly arguments and then sort of couching them in just common sense. Again, that's it's long-winded, but basically what I think is that Hitchens had these core principles and he wouldn't have, I don't think he would have capitulated the <laughs> heterodox sphere. He, I don't think he would have just like, I, I don't think it's fair to classify him as a neocon. Um, he had a lot of sympathy for neocons. I mean, he had a lot of sympathy for Paul Wolfowitz. He, he thought he'd been making good arguments for many years. Um, he was certainly friends with some of them, but it's just, I, I just think it's too simple to, to cram his politics into the classic conservative and left-wing binary. I mean, I just think that the idea that the United States should use its power to protect vulnerable populations wherever they are in the world, I think that's actually really radical. Um, and it, there has, doesn't have to be an imperialist component to it. It's not like he thought, had the United States gotten more involved in Darfur, we should just stay there forever and mine their mine their country. You know, I mean, the, the intervention in Bosnia was to Hitchens a pure humanitarian intervention because there was no we weren't stealing their natural resources. And you know, just a note for the Greenwalds of the world who say he was an anti-Muslim bigot. You know, the Bosnian Muslims were the people who he was calling upon the the West to defend in that case. So yeah, I I'm glad I'm glad I got to get some uh, supportive words in. You know, <laughs> I don't want to just run the guy down. I think people should should buy the book and check it out. You know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was going to give you an opportunity to give, give some final words uh, in, in defense of Hitchens without any pushback whatsoever, but I, I feel like you kind of did a pretty good job right there. Yeah, I, tr- um, I tried. I tried. <laughs> Meandered look- my way through a, a, a sort of holistic defense of Hitchens. It's actually a really interesting question for the record. I mean, it's it's worth asking, you know, because you go from radical Trotskyism to sort of radical assertions of like the value of American power. And like you, you a radical atheism, like, like all of these positions are quite radical. Like it, it does seem like that was just his general, general approach. And by, you know, I think that's, I think that's just how he fashioned himself and saw himself. And he thought it'd be too boring to just be a milk toast liberal like me, you know, it's like making a hedging when it comes to Alex Jones and free speech and, you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, um, given all of the characters that we've covered on um, Guru's pod recently, it sets such a low bar for uh, a decent public <laughs> intellectual. Uh, you won't get much pushback from me if you want to make the point that Hitchens uh, is a cut above or was a cut above. So, um, you know, very interesting points. Looking at the gurometer here, as you were talking, I was I was just asking myself, uh, to, to what degree might Hitchens fit that stuff? And look, to be honest, apart from the rhetorical flair, uh, and the eloquence, I'm not seeing too many lights um, <laughs> light up. <laughs> the system isn't blinking. Uh, no, <laughs> that's good. How's it, how's it compared to Oprah? <laughs> <laughs> better. 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 Yeah, week. well, he's, he's, not, he's not pushing natural health woes. That's a plus. Um, Chris, that's any final, final thoughts from you? No, I, it'll be interesting to look at, you know, his specific content. And then, as you say, anyway, he will go into the grometer so we can see how he scores. But uh, yeah, Matt, thanks for coming on and discussing Hitchens in depth. And we will have the link to your book <laughs> what not, <laughs> in the show notes so people can check it out. But is there anywhere in general 
but you know the, the standard podcast question where where do people find you on twitter yeah, i am on i days? am on twitter uh, <laughs> Sorry. i think twitter is at like 4chan levels of derangement now but it's probably trending toward 8chan anyway as long yeah. as i'm still on it yeah it's matt jj 89 on twitter and then i yeah just some of the publications you listed bulwark bulwark uh, <laughs> quilla Boudoir. i write Boudoir. for aereo that's iona's outfit and um yeah a few other places Haritz, you know i've been focused on the book lately so i haven't been churning out as many essays but um yeah i wrote a piece about john mearsheimer for quilla recently you guys might be interested in it's an yeah. interesting combination to have the Dilly Beast and Quillette um, on UCB, but I guess Ben Burgess probably can claim a similar thing. I don't know if he's ever in Quillette, but, you know, Jacobin and, and Colin. <laughs> so, uh, well, Matt, I will now disappear in a puff of smoke into the ether because I have to pick up a young infant. But um, it was good to meet you, and thanks for the the discussion-spirited exchange and... Good to see that Hitchin spirit lives on in all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe that just in terms of eloquence. Maybe that comment alone knowledge. just gives him like a, a notch on the gurometer or something. I, I'm like <laughs> picturing the gurometer as uh, just some machine that's whirring away in the background. It's like, it, yeah, is. it is. It is vintage thing from like that. an old Star Trek episode. <laughs> Big bulbs on top of it. They yeah, yeah that's message. how it works. Think steampunk. It's it's a steampunk in its yeah, yeah. fashioning. All right. Well, cool. You'll have to let me, you'll have to let me know what the the result is. How he scores. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But both of you don't go anywhere because this upload will need to happen now. So bye bye everyone else. But you guys stay here. And with that trumpet sound, <laughs> the interview is finished. <laughs> Matt and <laughs> his this is our new stinger. This is our new stinger. <laughs> our new stinger. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was bad, Chris. It was bad. I don't know if I had COVID. What, I the interview? I... No. You're, you're, you're so my bad. My infection. <laughs> my health. My health. The interview was good. Thank you, Matt Johnson, um, yeah. for that chat. Thank you, um, Matt. That was you. It did sound like you were talking to yourself. Thank you, Matt. You did well, Matt. You're a good, <laughs> good boy, job, Matt. Matt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I wonder, have I had a chance to complain about my health on this podcast yet? I don't think so. I don't you get to win. It's, it's hard to tell. It's you, you know, the way these podcasts are put together, Matt. Who knows what <laughs> happened when? <laughs> but, yeah, but you were sick. You were sick. Um, and now, genuinely sick. Genuinely sick. And now I'm still sick. It takes a while to get better from influenza A and or COVID. I'm not sure which one I had. Maybe both. I'm thinking both. Either that, or I'm just older and more feeble than I thought I was. But. Takes a little you know, while. What you could have done when you were sick is read this book about how your immune system <laughs> works. Mm. By, uh, I'm holding this up for my, by Philip Detmer, the creator of Kurzgesagt. So, uh, Kurzgesagt, yeah. Free you know advertisement. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're not there. sponsored but, by Kurzgesagt. No. We just have uh, to, we're contractually obliged to mention it once <laughs> per episode. Um, so. It actually yeah. just makes me feel guilty when you talk about that book because that's exactly the kind of book I feel like I, I should read, that I it's would get a lot out of. It, it looks beautiful. It looks very it heavy. It looks very thick. It looks it's daunting. A, it's not a book that a kid should read. It's like 40 chapters or whatever. So uh, I initially thought it would be good you know, for my son, but no, it's just for me. But I haven't read it. Look, just looked at it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you just looked at the cover. I won't get it. I will get it, though. Matt, now we're in the tail end of the podcast, and we did have a minor grievance at the beginning that we dealt with. Um, mm -hmm. 
you had a I've grievance, gotten, but yeah, yeah. We both what there were grievances aired. That's all that we. <laughs> that's all we can say. Whose grievance? It's unclear. It's a collective <laughs> endeavor. This podcast, but I, I did want to address a conspiracy theory that I saw um, on the subreddit about us because I think it's pretty good. And I like um, it. All right. So that's going to be our review of reviews, um, like aspect. And to tie it up, I also have some feedback about your geopolitical analysis of Scandinavia feedback. So this is our review of review section today. I expect um, the feedback to be he nailed it. That was it. That's yeah. And we'll see. Okay. All right. So uh, let's get started. Uh, tell me about this conspiracy theory. So, you know, our subreddit is occasionally. Uh, like all subreddits, feuding amongst itself about various topics. And one which is a consistent source of disagreement is one Sam Harris. <laughs> um, now, uh, there are people on the subreddit that remain fans or generally you know, positively disposed, and there are people that think he's the spawn of Satan and, and destroying you know, society, leading individuals one by one into the waiting hands of the... Uh, Weinstein's and Jordan Peterson and, and and worse folk, Tucker Carlson and so on. Now, that's fine. Everybody's allowed their own takes and stuff, but somebody decided to do a poll to to settle the issue of whether Sam Harris was an uh, a racist. And he won a landslide victory that he's not a racist according to that poll. Right, So that settles yeah. the issue, uh, I think, scientifically. Pretty much that that's how you run things and, and check you do subreddit polls. But in the various discussions, I think it's there or it's somewhere else. Anyway, it, the topic came up and there were some people, Matt, who suggested that like you and I, we pull our punches when it comes to criticizing Sam. Like we'll say some things, you know, we'll take some critical comments, but we fundamentally cannot criticize him because... We need to keep his fans sweet. We've got this overlap of audiences and we don't want to alienate the Sam Harris fans. So that's why I'm so, why I'm <laughs> always praising them and, and why I'm never willing to like, you know, say any a strong criticism his way. So we are in the pocket of Big Harris. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I, I don't know if you, you, you noticed that, but um, how's that mm. for a conspiracy theory? Yeah, well, um, that is a good conspiracy theory. I, look, sorry to debunk it because it's it's fun to have conspiracy theories, but there's simply nothing that Sam Harris fans could offer us that uh, would really value. I mean, what about I don't money? Know. Do, do they give us money? How much money do they give us? But this not- is a question. All Sam Harris fans, please send emails with the exact amount of money that you give us, just so I can tally it, it, it up. Like some people. <laughs> Do you have conspiratorial mindsets? Because like maybe if we wanted to make the podcast more profitable, we might do something like search out advertisers rather than try to like, you know butter up hook. butter up the Sam Harris contingent. Yeah. <laughs> as our strategy. Like the, or mention the Patreon consistently. <laughs> like that would be another tactic. But you know, just this notion that that's it. That explains because why we don't have the exact same critique of Sam as, as someone else. And mm. I just, I love it. I love it. And, you know, the part that I really appreciate about it is that comes on the back 
of, you know, the Sam Harris episode where me and him had an enjoyable conversation was some time ago. But we released a specific episode that was a response to his coverage of the lab leak controversy, right? We, we organized a panel of experts and we took clips from his show and, and framed it very much as a response to, you know, the mm. experts that he had just presented. Quite a, criti- quite a critical response. Some um. might say, <laughs> some, some might say it, it was critical, but no. Not critical enough, Chris. Not critical enough. Not critical uh, enough. I think it's because that's not what they want. They, they want us to focus on, you know, his palling around with various people and, and like his charity being unevenly applied. All things which we've already said, but in any case, just mm. so you know, Matt, I won't be tolerating after this episode, any more criticism of of Harris because that's our cash cry. <laughs> okay? Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> okay. All right. That's right. So Nick's if you're a Harris fan, the- this episode is an outlier. You're never going to hear him again on the show. We won't hear a bad word said against <laughs> Sam again. You, uh, you, you bring up Sam Harris like every episode. I think you're obsessed no, with him. No, not enough, Matt. I don't say it critically <laughs> enough. That's the problem. According to the people, We I only bring him up positively to praise him so well i enjoy the subreddit i appreciate you guys i like it i like uh people are unhappy about my pronunciation that's the only thing i remember i don't say matrix correctly matrix no there's other things people are upset about Uh (laughs) (laughs) i can give you a long long list of things but you know we're not here to massage the the gripes of the the subreddit. Well, no, oh. I do want to respond to one one more concern that's been raised on the subreddit because I'm sympathetic to it. I am sympathetic to it, which is there's been a couple of uh, threads and engagement about maybe us transitioning to becoming like a Weinstein watch, uh, focusing more and more on the antics of Eric and Brett Weinstein, maybe have a hang well, as well. And I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic because they are extremely entertaining. And I'm actually open to the idea of, you know, revisiting them semi-regularly, play some clips. I know what you're going to say, Chris. We are returning to them. We're going to yeah. be looking at Eric and UFOs. It's going to be great. People will love it. So, yeah, and, and we'll do that. We'll, <laughs> we'll do that. We'll do that. We'll, okay, we'll okay. That's a, I, wasn't, I wasn't expecting you to go there, but that's fine. That's fine. I, yeah, I have no objection to that. But, no, we will not become a dedicated Eric and podcast, but we will return no. to their world. And, My self-esteem and, and could not handle it like if my role in no. yeah. <laughs> was, was to be like an obsessive weinstein watcher like that was my contribution to society i couldn't yeah I, I couldn't go on chris no i don't i don't think i could either to be honest so so yes we won't do that but we will return on occasion they're just funny funny sorts if, if it wasn't for the fact that they promote like right-wing partisans and anti-vaccine lunacy and encourage people indeed to engage in conspiratorial style reasoning, then that would be all great. Oh, sorry. And the alternative theories of evolution and physics that they promote, that would also be, you know, apart from all these things, all these things that they do, they would be harmless. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so Matt, as I said, we're not here to talk about the subreddit that would be far too indulgent so let me turn instead to feedback we received on our patreon from yeah that's um, not indulgent Go but ahead. this is good this is a taking you to task which is what we want um so oh. after 
chastising you for your fawning over Sam Harris. Now I need to tell you about what you've been up to and what you've got wrong in regards to Norway, Scandinavia. Here, here we go. I'm just going to read it, Matt. Hello, Norwegian listener answering request or more information on Scandinavians. For the Norwegian part, we don't like Swedes. Our culture has a joke category called Svenski Witzer, translated Swede jokes, mostly centered on making fun of Swedes. But Norwegians love to go shopping in Sweden due to cheaper products, and many Swedes move to Norway for work due to better salaries in Norway. Oh, also, Norwegians love Danes, adore Danes. I don't know why, as Denmark ruled over Norway for about 300 years and considered Norwegians a bunch of dumb fa farmers, maybe it's a case of Stockholm Syndrome, or maybe because Denmark signed over a piece of ocean territory to Norway in the 60s, where Norwegians found oil and made Norway one of the richest countries in the world. <laughs> based on GDP per capita, and said, yes, probably the latter. Norwegians understand the Swedish and Danish language, and Danes and Swedes pretend not to understand Norwegian. <laughs> and Chris is right. There is a huge difference between the Scandinavians. Huge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, sadly, there's not. But the stereotypes <laughs> are Swedes are hip, politically correct bores. Norwegians are jovial, outdoorsy, and naive. Deans are alcoholic artists. And, and Scandinavians share a lot of sentiments with Irish and Brits. Norwegians perhaps are most like Scots, too direct, bordering on rude, do not shy away from profanities. We love dark humor and sarcasm. A sign of love is to take the piss out of someone. Maybe that's why you have a lot of Norwegian listeners. And by the way, Finland is not a part of Scandinavia. <laughs> so, so that was it? Uh, wait wait it was the, the last bit through me finland is it part of scandinavia that's out of the norwegian's mouth that's what I, they I, said i think he i think he should double check he, that. he she, not, well it looks like your misogyny has raised its ugly head <laughs> again and this is not a he this is and they demanded that i tried to pronounce it phonetically Sarah Gunhals Bo Bo. You don't know whether it's a matter or do you? Based on that name, you have no idea. It's Sarah Bo Beer. What? How would you pronounce B O umlaut? I simply not umlaut. It's got the line for it. B O with the line for it, and then an E. I think it's like a. Yep, that sounds about right. I just wouldn't try to pronounce it. That's that would be my. Sarah Gunhals Beer. No, that was a good letter. I think they need to double check about Finland. I'm, I'm not sure they're right about that. Um, they might need to. No, I know Norwegians. I know Norwegians, and I've got. Did you know all in, that in Finland in Helsinki? I, I knew most. I, I I knew the gist of it. I knew the gist. Of I it. didn't know that. I tell you I've what, seen I frozen. I, <laughs> I tell you what, I assumed. I assumed it was just like everywhere else, where it was the narcissism of small differences, like you know, between the Northern Irish and the English. Um, no, you no, know, you, you're basically it's a huge. There's a huge difference there, Matt. The, one is good, one is bad. It's like saying the Jedi <laughs> are just like the Sith. I won't say which one, though. I'll leave that for people <laughs> to decide on their own. But yes, that was very good feedback from Sarah Gunhaus Bue. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for educating me about 
your proud peoples and your different but equally valid cultures up there where the sun don't right. shine. Now, now, Matt, I'm going to thank our patrons. I'm going to do it so goddamn well that you're, you're not even going to know it has happened. And yet it will have happened. So here we go, Matt. It's going to be the usual crapshoot as the who gets it. And it starts like this. Conspiracy hypothesizers. Cat Barrett, Vanessa Parr, Wheelgate, Pump Uniki, Christian F, Nikki Gray, Nick Daly, James Melly, Hedy Savarud, David Walker, David R, Philip Tries Life, Oliver Church, Eric Svensson, Tristan Bella, Frazier, and Andrew Silicanio. That's all our conspiracy hypothesizers. Mm, great, great people, good names, but you know. What's a better name than the name of any of those Patreons? The guy on Reddit whose who's handle is Tamla's Ghost. Oh, that's <laughs> like, really good. Yeah. I like that. That's, I can't stop doing the Norwegian thing now. That's a pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's so, an ugly, ugly, ugly uh, invitation there, Chris. I, I apologize yeah. to our Norwegian Scandinavian friends. Then we get told off our white accents, doing accents. Well, look, this is our this is my natural accent, okay? It's just mm. a, a dialect of Belfast. Um, okay, so yeah, I play this clip now. I feel like there was a conference that none of us were invited to that came to some very strong conclusions, and they've all circulated this list of correct answers. Now, I wasn't at this conference. This kind of shit makes me think, man. It's almost like someone is being paid like when when you hear these George Soros stories, mm-hmm. well, he's trying to destroy the country from within. We are not going to advance conspiracy theories. We will advance conspiracy hypotheses. Important you hear distinction. it from Joe. You hear it from Joe, Matt. It's so annoying when you hear these conspiracy theories. Like, yeah, Joe, you, you're the one that says yeah. that. I know, I know. Stop getting angry about the clips. It should be worn off by now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to hear the Peterson and Weinstein interaction, so let's see if it's worn off. Uh, Revolutionary geniuses. James Reed, Giovanni, Rebecca Christensen, you know her. Oh, yes. Hi, Rebecca. L. Keed, Greg Binder, Peter Alstrom, Kerry Stout, I can't stop. I can't you can't help yourself, can that. you? Jesse Hodges, Jordan Fernandez, Thomas Clark, and Bob Gower. Oh, and Sean Gibby. Again, old Sean. Wonderful. Good old Sean. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, one and all. Thank you, one and all. I'm usually running, I don't know, 70 or 90 distinct paradigms simultaneously all the time. And the idea is not to try to collapse them down to a single master paradigm. I'm someone who's a true polymath. I'm all over the place. But my main claim to fame, if you'd like, in academia is that I founded the field of evolutionary consumption. Now, that's just a guess, and, and, and it could easily be wrong. But it, it also could not be wrong. The fact that it's even plausible is stunning. <laughs> um, Chris, just that reminded me with that uh, clip from Jordan Hall there at the beginning. Like, not only would it be fun to return to the Weinsteins occasionally, just with some choice select little clips, for everyone to enjoy. But there are so many other people in the guru sphere that we could return to just occasionally when a, you know, a little treat um, comes catch along. Catch up with and, our old friends. Yeah, yeah. I know. And, and there's a, there was a thing, again, on the Reddit where Jordan Hall 
uh, a clip with him talking about how he can teach you to play guitar in in one minute. I sent that to you. I, that was hilarious. Hilarious. Can he do that? Well, does he deliver? To, we'll have to play the clip. Let's play the clip next time, next episode. We'll play the clip True. and like just a few fun clips. Things these fun things clips. come along. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. Galaxy Brain Gurus, though, Matt, the, the, the shining stars in the guru sky. Kyle Wilson, that's one of them. Now, you might be saying, where's the other ones? That's the question, Matt, that we want to know. And we have answers. We got Brendan Smith. We've got Couch, just Couch, just an object. Oh, that could be Couch. Mark, that could be Couch. Couch. Could be Couch. That could be my mate in Sydney. I, I know Couch, oh. as in Grass Couch. Yeah. Grass Cooch, is it? Well, him. okay, yeah. Cooch. Cheers, Cooch. Have a bong for me. <laughs> it might be a guy. He sounds, if his no. name is Cooch, he sounds like a guy. That He's a middle-aged lawyer. and He, he doesn't smoke bongs. his name is Cooch? Cause... Well, it's his handle. Come on. Let a man live. Let him live. Sounds, Let him be. Like stonefish or something. Anyway, yes, well, I appreciate his highest tier response <laughs> or highest tier support for us. So uh, forget all that. Good. Couch, cooch, whatever. All good. All good. Yeah. He bought me dinner. Um, <laughs> so Mark Curran, him as well. Rob Leslie Jr., not the senior. Unfortunately, couldn't get the senior. Jennifer Nelson. Karen Urquhart. 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 Oh, God. Urquhart? Urquhart. How would you pronounce Urquhart. that? Yeah, Urquhart. Yeah. Urquhart. Yes. Yes. Alex Anderson. Chase. Chase. And, and Matt, last but certainly not least, two people we've found before but have somehow popped up on the sheet. Dan Gilbert, Bad Stats himself, and Matt Half. Uh, yeah. Oh, hey, ah, Sam Hurt Photography. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And look, as, as a token of appreciation to, to Dan for being a gold-tier patron, we should steal some of his Jordan Peterson clips and, and Weinstein yeah. clips. Uh, as a token of respect, indeed, could work. Yeah, uh, Thomas T. as well, Matt. Deal Morris, good old Deal. I'm sure we've said thanks to him before, but uh, a wise yeah. man. Uh, so, yep, yep. Thanks to him. He's got heart. Uh, he's got good heart. He's got heart. He? No, just I don't oh, know if it's good or not, but he's got <laughs> he's got heart. He's got heart. He knows right. a thing or two about Buddhism. I'd say that as well. Someone who may or may not know about Buddhism is Buin Niklasen. I, mm -hmm. I cannot vouch for the, the Dharma knowledge there, but that's the last Galaxy Brain Guru for this week, Matt. And, um, well, that was a surprisingly large group. So. I, because I just worked out a new way to find them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's why. Um, it's called a search function. Anyway, I'm going to push this button. You're sitting on one of the great scientific stories that I've ever heard, and you're so polite. And, hey, wait a minute. Am I an expert? I kind of am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't trust people at all. No, should you? No, should no. you? Keep your wits about um, Well, so we'll be back, Matt. We'll be back soon enough for another exciting decoding and we'll include some nice clips of people doing nice things or silly things or teaching us how to play the guitar in one minute just for fun. Yeah, we'll do yeah. it. We'll do It'll it. Be more fun, more fun in future episodes. So don't worry if this episode wasn't as fun as you might have hoped. There's more fun on the way. A roller coaster, a steamroller of fun.
poor old Alarmat. That's throwing shit in the last one minute. I'm, <laughs> I'm disappointed in you. Yes, no, Matt, this is current Matt is not talking about Alarmat, of course. He's just talking no, about, you I'm know, talking, what, I'm, general I'm jumping too critical of our intro and outro. That's what I'm thinking of. That's all right. We'll edit it down, Matt. It'll be perfect. Yeah, It'll be perfect. We'll do, yeah. uh, all right. All right. Any, fin- any final thoughts for our listeners, Chris? Any advice? Anything they should be doing? Oh, well, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm <laughs> God, getting the it. tension is killing me. Pay attention to the distributed <laughs> ideas oppression complex and watch out for the gated institutional narrative. Wow. <laughs> wow. Stunning, Chris. Stunning. That, that went a bit... <laughs> went a bit a yeah. from the Simpsons, didn't it? No, I was thinking the guy from the Muppets, you know, the the, the chef. Oh, the Swedish chef. The okay, Swedish that's chef. good. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. that's not that's not good. It's not good. Mm. But we'll let it be. We'll we'll let it go. I I apologize uh, to everyone in Scandinavia, including the Finns. Hell, yeah. you know, they're probably yeah. offended as well. <laughs> uh, that's it. That's it. We've got them all. And as we always like to say. Please subscribe to Sam Harris, Making Sense. Yep. Uh, he's got he's not as bad apps. as people he's say. He's got a good podcast. Yep. It's, it's all good. You know, just lo- lo- that, lot uh, of tell him we credit. sent you. Make sure you use our referral <laughs> link. Just say the Cody the Gurus sent you. Um, and and please don't mention any critical comments. Yeah. And if you happen to be speaking to Sam, just put in a good word for us. That's, that's yeah. all we ask. Yeah. That's all we ask. That's all. That's all we yeah. want. Um, so, yeah, that's all for today. Uh, <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, ciao.